In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1494 to 1507. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1494 Abandoned Ship, written by Traumatized Waffle All crew, I repeat, abandoned ship, crackled the intercom, the voice of the captain sounding terribly strained. The floor beneath me shook violently and I slammed into the wall for a moment before getting back on my feet and continuing my mad dash to the escape pods. Hell breach and deck four, no life signs detected, crackled the intercom again, this time computerized voice taking the place of the captain's. I chose not to think about the many other Traxians that had been assigned to the deck four as I continued onward. I turned a corner and stopped, looking into the escape pod bay, I shifted my gaze frantically across the different pods. Almost all of them had a display that read ejected in red letters. Finally, I spotted the green glow of an unejected pod at the end of the hall. Warning, power cascade faded detected. Fusion meltdown imminent, blared the automated warning system. I took that as a sign to get out of here and raced towards the pod. I pressed the button on the wall opening the pod. I scrambled in sat down, slamming my palm down onto the auto-eject button. The pod system began warming up and I strapped myself in. Suddenly, there was a banging on the pod door. I looked through the porthole and saw another crewman frantically pounding on the door. Please, please, please let me in. All the other pods are gone, shouted the crew member. I looked at them, then towards the pod controls, and then back to them. They were still banging on the pod door. I felt a tinge of guilt shoot through me, and I pressed the button on the control panel, unsealing the pod door. The person fell through just in time for the safeguards to reseal the door. Thank you, thank you so much, they exclaimed. Shut up and strap yourself in, we're about to eject, I shouted back. Fusion meltdown detected, reactor containment failure in 15 seconds, reported the pod's onboard computer. The crew member sat down and yanked on the straps across their torso. There was a hissing noise, and the pod was violently wrenched from the Blumian's hull. I looked out the portal just in time for the reactor containment to fail, nearly blinding me. Morning, pod systems damaged, reaction control system offline, crackled the onboard computer, which was obviously also on the verge of failing. What, is, what does that mean? questioned the crew member. It means they were in big trouble. We can't control the pod's trajectory, I shot back, clinging to my seat straps. The crew member's eyes widened, and they began to freak out. What do we do? What, what do we do? stammered the crew member, who I'd finally identified as Ramius from Logistics. We hope the pod isn't in a dangerous trajectory, I shrugged, doing my utmost to contain my terror. Suddenly, as if the universe itself heard me, the onboard computer crackled to life. Proximity warning, trajectory obstructed, it crackled, before finally shooting up sparks and dying. I looked over at Ramius, who had resigned himself to squinting, his eyes shut and whimpering. I looked out the portal and could see that our trajectory was indeed alarmingly obstructed. We were careening right towards a large chunk of debris from the Blumian. It had probably been thrown from the wreck. I reached above my head and pulled down the attached crash bar and loudly instructed Ramius to do the same. Ramius managed to get his crash bar down right as the pod impacted the debris chunk. 
There was a horrid screeching noise, and Ramius and I were thrown against our straps. I briefly had time to think of my family back on Traxius Prime, right before the hull tore open. I watched as Ramius was ripped from his straps. Evidently, he had not put his crash bar on all the way as it popped up and he was sucked through the hull into space. I clung to my crash bar as tightly as I could, but the force was too much. And I was sucked from my seat and through the hull breach as well. It was dead silent in the void, and I tumbled wildly, shaking my limbs in the vain hope that someone would see me. My consciousness began to fade right as a large ship that I didn't recognize warped into view. I smiled at that, though I knew that they were already too late to send the recovery pod to get me. I felt moisture leach from my single eye as I went blind. Just as my vision was going completely dark, I felt a strange sensation throughout my body, as if all the molecules in my body were violently shaking. I had no time to consider the strange, almost alien markings displayed on the massive vessel. I awoke laying in what felt like a hospital bed. I couldn't tell for sure, as I was completely blind. The lack of pressure and the harsh temperatures of space had evidently been too much for my eye to handle for that long. I could hear someone around me speaking, but they were speaking in a dialect that I had never heard before. My arms and legs were restrained, which alarmed me a little. Suddenly, I felt a piercing sensation in my eye and my vision began to return. I saw a figure standing at my side. They almost looked Traxian before my vision fully returned. But now that it had, I could tell that they were not. The skin on this, uh, creature was pink and looked like it offered little in the way of protection against the elements. They had two eyes, which was weird. Why would you need two eyes? They had long hair that was shaved on the one side where my myriad of electronics was inlaid into what I assumed was the cranium. They looked down at me and continued to speak in that strange dialect I heard earlier, which I now identified as an alien language as this creature was clearly of an alien race not discovered until now. The person looked down at me and then reached up to one of the electronics on their skull and pressed a few small buttons. Can you understand me? questioned the person. They had just spoken to me in my own language perfectly, which jarred me. The Traxians were one of the most advanced races in the galaxy, and even we didn't have translated technology that good. Not to mention, it was clearly linked directly to the alien's brain. I was a bit reckless, I thought. Uh, yes, um, I, I can, I replied. My gaze fixed on the strange, clearly very advanced alien. They looked back at me and smiled. Good. I was hoping it wouldn't take too long for my translator implant to get a fix in your brainwaves, replied the creature. That chip was reading my mind just to translate my language. I was becoming increasingly nervous of these aliens. You are not going to attack me if I remove your restraints, are you? Questioned the alien, eyeing me dubiously. No. You are clearly far more advanced than my race, sir. I'm sure you could dispose of me rather quickly if I tried. I spoke quietly. The alien nodded, clearly not denying my observation, and went about removing the clamps and held me down. I sat up and flexed my digits. I was surprisingly unscathed for how long I had floated out in the vacuum of space. I have several questions, I finally spoke, returning my gaze to the alien. 
The alien smiled wildly and made a series of strange noises, apparently amused. I am sure you do. Ask away. I'll answer what I can, replied the alien, meeting my gaze. Rattling around in my head foremost was the question of how my vision had returned, so I figured that was a good starting point. I gestured to my single, large eye. How can I see? I clearly remember going blind after being exposed in vacuum for so long. I questioned, eyeing the alien curiously. Ah, that. We injected your eye with a compound containing nanites, which uh, went through your eyes and repaired the nerves and remoisturized it, explained the alien swiftly. Nanites? What are nanites? I questioned, having never heard of the term before. They are very small robots, basically. Almost microscopic. They work in tandem to perform different tasks. The complexity of the tasks doesn't even matter, provided there are sufficient number of them, explained the alien, making gestures with their upper appendages as they went. I had tiny machines in my eye. That was alarming. Although they had repaired the eye and so far, I did not feel these aliens necessarily wished me any harm. Okay, um, what, uh, sorry, uh, who are you? I questioned, which besides my eye was the one of the biggest questions I had. Now that's an easy one. I'm Amara, and I'm a human, replied the alien, now identified as human. What's your name? Um, I'm Jarian. I'm a Traxian, I replied, mimicking the human's earlier response. The human extended one of her upper appendages. Nice to meet you, Jarian, she spoke, appendage still outstretched. I stared at the appendage, wondering exactly what kind of gesture the human was attempting to make. She seemed to catch on to this. It is called a handshake. Just grab thy hand and shake it. It's a greeting, and sometimes a gesture of respect, she explained, appendage still outstretched. I cautiously held my appendage out and grasped the human's. She shook her appendage, and I did my best to mimic the gesture. There, that's the introduction out of the way. I suppose, uh, any other questions? Asked Amara. Several, um, why have I never met your species before? I asked, genuinely curious. Surely a species as advanced as these humans seem to be would have been encountered by now. Well, uh, even though we are very technologically advanced people, the secrets of warp travel have eluded us until fairly recently. In fact, you're aboard the first human starship of the warp drive, and the first to leave our solar system, explained the human. They'd only discovered warp tech recently, and this far along on their advancement. How strange. Warp technology was considered a relatively early technology. Generally, coming right after first man orbital flights in a species development. However, that oddity did explain why no one had ever encountered these humans before. Their home system must be somewhere fairly remote. Okay, uh, one more question, I said having nearly satisfied my curiosity for the moment. Go ahead, nodded the human. How did you recover me from the void? By, by my calculations, it was already much too late for a recovery. I asked, watching the human carefully. I was very curious about this matter. There was no conceivable way that I could possibly come up with that allowed for me to be recovered from the void. Well, recovered alive, at least. Oh, we just beamed you on board replied the human simply. Um, what? I questioned, dumbfounded. You know, uh, beamed you on board, you know, like, like teleported, answered the human, seeming confused. Y 
you, you teleported me? I answered back, absolutely shocked to the core. No species in the galaxy had come close to mastering teleportation technology. Many believed it wasn't even scientifically nor physically possible. Yet here was the human, standing there talking as though it was the commonplace. Yes, we teleported you. Is that a problem? Are you suffering any ill effects from the molecular deconstruction and reconstruction? Amara bombarded me with questions, seeming apparently concerned by my sudden outburst. No, 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 I'm fine. Tales from Outer Space 1495 Story number one. Legacy, written by Nerda Virilis. Captain Rick Basuja the Ninth knew the declaration was the ultimate challenge of the pilgrim. He flicked his proboscis across the viewscreen, bringing up log summaries for the last millennium. Leaving Tithas had been a simple task for Captain Basuja the First, who followed a carefully plotted system of gravity slingshots, orbital laser arrays, and good old-fashioned rocket fuel to accelerate the pilgrim up to 0.3 C. The route ahead was kept clear of lonely hydrogen atoms by magnetic field, so the only collision had been with an improbable asteroid. Unfortunately, it was traveling in the same direction at the same fraction of the speed of light. Captain Basuja II had performed the necessary repairs whilst the redundant systems maintained life support. Captain Basuja III made several course corrections early to keep fuel use low, Several generations then passed their lives without incident, modifying the ship's systems to save resources and appreciating the recordings of Earth. The music that had unified the Tethys in the task of reaching across the void. Captain Basuja VI had made final course corrections for the final approach, and the stellar windbreaks were deployed by Captain Basuja VII. There were maps of the solar system, plenty of them, Humanity had not been shy, transmitting technical discussions of the neighborhood alongside the music, competition, and storytelling that they were renowned for on Tethys. Once the Pilgrim was in rage, Captain Basuja VIII had used the Pilgrim's own instruments to correct the existing maps and run extensive simulations of the final approach. Now Rick Basuja IX was the captain. His ancestors had done their duties so that he could do his to steer the ship down the gravity well of Sol and into that of Earth. It was a simple route. Swing around Sol and Uranus would change their course and shrug off the majority of their speed. After a final pass by Saturn, he would bring the ship into orbit of Earth. We have detected a signal, sir. Ensign Stock Waterman the 11th pulled the captain from his considerations. The Pilgrim had received a new round of encouragement and praise from each generation of politicians on their homeworld. It made sense that there would be more as they neared the finale. What does the Tethys have to say? No, sir. It's not a message from home. The ensign was visibly embarrassed. He is pressed back as he corrected the captain. The signal is coming from Earth. That's impo- The captain gave himself a moment to breathe. The Earth had been silent for thousands of years. That was the whole purpose of the strip. The idea that humanity had woken at this moment was absurd. But he knew that the crew was capable and dedicated. Hanson, what are the humans saying? The detection algorithm is running now, sir. The signal is definitely coming from the vicinity of Earth. I think it's... The ensign fell silent, tapping an icon on his viewscreen. 
the bridge of the pogrom vibrated with music. The piece was well-known product of the so-called modern era, something of a joke to later humans. It was nevertheless beautiful. Knowing that it was being transmitted from Earth was humbling. It had been thousands of years since their kind had received transmission. As the piece closed, the ensign spoke again. The signal was weak, sir. They are unlikely to detect it back on Tethys. There was no atmospheric interference to scrub, suggesting an orbital transmitter. We'll know more once we get closer. The pilgrim continued on the intended course, picking up more recordings from Earth's orbit. Captain Basuja the Ninth had the signals broadcast across the ship, the sounds of the old world echoing through the corridors vibrating the freezers where generations of tethered eggs were tended by the crew. Shortly after they traversed Saturn, the ensign called out that a different signal was coming in. This one had video. Howdy, travelers! The viewscreen flickered to life, revealing a writhing purple mass speaking in perfect English. Hi, my name is Sheriff Alvis Monroe, and I'm here to welcome you to the Solar Saloon. I know that you must have a lot of questions, but that'll have to wait until you're close enough to avoid the time delay. The mass appeared fully committed to the cowboy aesthetic. My stalks poked through the top of the Stetson hat, dozens of tentacles flapped around individually armed holes in the leather vest. Luckily, I have this conversation a few times already, so let me give you some answers. No, I'm not human. I'm a hurrigarina. A tentacle flopped up and gave the Stetson a tug. We evolved around Gumbridge 35, so after Earth fell silent, we were the first to arrive. But we are not the last. The Drendel, the Ivan, and the Uru, and the Tall Greys, the Hilavu, and the Reformed High Order of Unified Qualifiers, the Drizan, and the 011000100111111011011000. The rule, and we're all just fans like you. As the cowboy spoke, the scene shifted to show the classic human bar. Two purple herringa were mixing drinks in cowboy outfits, flinging bottles and glasses between their tentacles with a chaotic grace. A range of unfamiliar body types, unfamiliar outfits from human's history, interacted from within tanks or atmosphere suits. Several were humanoid in appearance, but they were unmistakably not human. We have a variety of orbital facilities. Resources are handled by our recycled ships, allowing us to focus on the important things. There's bars, clubs, studios, and arenas if listening to or recording music is your thing. Folkwave has been popular in the last few years. Over the sports ring uh, in 511th Football World Cup is about to start. If your species is physiologically capable, you are welcome to enter... The next Olympics will be in a couple of years away. Of course, our digital library contains the most complete collection of human text, art, and video in the universe. Uh, you'll be excited to hear that quite a lot of untransmitted work was recovered. Scenes and facilities flashed up. Scaled centaur people laughing and fluttering insectoids in the sunslit parza. The Herignant R pilot, humanoid robots swinging a bat, sending a ball towards the starry sky. A heterogeneous crowd moving in time with flickering human holograms performing on stage. Unfamiliar silhouettes looking on as the sun set behind an empty earth. We, uh, we're not sure what happened to the humans. I expect you heard the final transmissions. 
just as we did. Um, uh, there were high levels of uh, radioactive elements in Earth's atmosphere when we arrived, but, uh, well, uh, uh, there wasn't much left. The eye stalks retracted, and the creature paused. It didn't seem right to leave, so we didn't want to give them up. The finest bards in the universe deserve to be remembered. So, um, here we are. End of story. Story number two. The Galactic Bear Trap, written by Prentha. Trowell was excited to have his first posting for the Confederacy of Sovereign Systems since his training's completion. He was assigned to be the navigation officer aboard the Cleansing Light. As navigation officer, he was on the bridge during his duty and was permitted to watch the stars wherever the ship traveled. The sight of endless space and twinkling of faraway lights was something the simulators could never do justice. His excitement was significantly dampened when they arrived. Sol System, a notoriously bland star system with only one major defining feature. A life-bearing planet with sapient life currently developing its civilization and having recently sent their first mining expeditions to the natural satellite orbiting their planet. It was the worst posting in the fleet one could get. It was boring. It was tedious. And worst of all, you only went to FTL to see new stars. When resupplying and returning to a system, it was the same set of stars and galactic bodies day in, day out. The nightmare for Trell. Why do we bother watching this place? Nothing happens. No one comes through and there is a quarantine zone over 50 light years in radius, exclaimed the exasperated Trell. The only one who could listen being the sensor technician, Wilkes. He replied without breaking from his sensor scan. That's because you're not thinking about the bigger picture. Start asking yourself why with a more constructive attitude. Well, uh, the civilization is just now reaching beyond their home planet. Is the Confederation determining if they can reach out? Trell leaned forward in his chair towards his companion. Not quite. See, this mission has been active for about uh, ten years, sir. First contact assessment finishes within the first two. Try again. They're dangerous, and the CSS wants us to make sure that they don't get out. Closer, but not quite. So here. Wilkes moved over, showing his sensor screen. There was a minimal data. In fact, almost none. Trell was befuddled. Where's the planetary sensor data? Because we're not watching the planet. The sensors are set to detect incoming FTL wakes within the quarantine zone. See, the assessment board figured out the race on this planet are approximately 20 or so odd years from establishing a solar system-wide presence. And 50 for their first FTL. The board wants us to prevent anyone from interfering with that. Trell was cut off by a turn of the head from Wilkes. A very snarky look on his face. But aha! You, you might be wondering... Dad, you go look at the survey data on this race. Trell pulled up the file, seeing a wondrous assortment of inventions. The standard stuff, horses, locomotion, flight, spacecraft, and of course, interplanetary construction being the most recent. Nothing out of the ordinary. What about it? They went from that, Wilkes pointed to the horse on the screen, then to the rudimentary spacecraft, in less than 500 years. You're lying. This had to have taken at least 5,000. Nope. Assessment board found out that these little lads have a technological advancement rate far exceeding the projected averages and climbing. 
The CSS needs time to prepare for their arrival of this race. They don't want the economy to come crashing around us at the same sane speed that they'll be improving upon our current confederation technology. And uh, who knows what else? The quarantine is set up so that no nation tries to uplift these guys and use them for personal gain against the CSS. So the files from the assessment board have been sealed for anyone outside positions like ours. They also don't want some upstarts trying to put them down either. Bleeding hearts, they are. So, here we are. Most important watch duty in the galaxy. The sensor screen lit up, illuminating a dimly lit bridge. In a flash, Wilkes hit an alarm that put the entire bridge on high alert. Eyes fixated on the sensors. Multiple contacts jumping in close proximity at the third planet in system. It's a full expedition fleet, Captain. With the orders from the captain coming out across the various communications channels for the ship, the crew sprang into action, too late to jam their light from the showing before anyone with the telescope. Trull was terrified. First posting in fleet and the entire galaxy was about to change. He turned to Wilkes, a look of fear on his face. Someone just stepped on a bear trap. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1496 Story number one, Babysitter, written by Sinchi Dev. It was a weird idea, like most human ideas, but I have to admit, this one was interesting. I mean, leaving your kids with humans was a risk, but kids never talked back to them or dared to disobey them. Their reputation as fierce warriors preceded them. I had my doubts the first time we did it, but having some free time with my wife was a compelling argument, so we went ahead. Crap, the humans have things figured out. Buying free time for money, that has to be one of the best ideas in the galaxy. To be honest, the biggest issue was who to pick. Male babysitters knew more games and were the most liked by the kids. But kids were more likely to get broken extremities because they'd let them play too rough. Female babysitters were less liked by the kids, but more likely to follow the instructions you as a parent could leave for your kids. This time, we were leaving for a longer time, so we are calling a more experienced one, Mary. Though taller than us, was small for human standards. 1.5 meters, she said. Later, I'd have to look at how much that was in standard galactic units. We live in an average farming colony at the edge of our race's territory. Nothing of value to steal, but pirate raids are always a possibility. We have a small bunker that could hold our kids and a babysitter for the duration of a raid, which is usually one cycle long at most. Our kids love stories about heroes and sleep early. They rarely eat much and could survive for many cycles without much food. They are sweet and well-behaved. We are going off-world to visit my wife's family, and we shouldn't take more than two cycles. We gave all of our information to Mary before parting. She nodded vigorously to everything we said and promised us that she would keep our kids safe. The trip to my wife's old world was quite uneventful. The conversation went as usual up until my wife's brother turned the TV on and the emergency broadcast was on. My home! My entire planet was being attacked by pirates. They all looked at us. We left immediately. We made the trip in the shortest time possible. Our military was engaged with the pirates. 
We could only watch from the sidelines, as our military forbade us to interfere, as we would be more a hindrance than an asset. One cycle. Two cycles. Three cycles. The pirates finally retreat. We were escorted to the coordinates I provided to my home. There's no building standing. I can't see any landmarks I recognized. I can't find my home. One of the soldiers says he found someone. It's Mary. She's covered from head to toe in pirate blood, barely holding a metal bar that she was using as a cane. She's standing, but doesn't move. There's pirate corpses around her. Many pirate corpses. My wife rushes to her. Mary moves her head a little when my wife starts calling for her. My wife asks about our kids. Mary moves her arm with what I can see as a great effort and points to a location. We rush to the place she pointed and we see the entrance to the bunker. We open it and there they are. My kids. They're safe. My kids are safe, screams my wife. We hear a faint, good, from Mary as she collapses. Now military took us to the nearest operative health center. My kids got a full check, no issues. They said that they weren't scared, because as soon as they heard the pirates, Mary took them to the bunker. Don't worry, I'll protect you, she said, with a smile, and closed the bunker from the outside. Mary was a different story. She had several trauma injuries, dehydration, hunger effects, lack of sleep, adrenaline overdose, and some other stuff that was human-specific issues that I couldn't understand. The military report arrived shortly after. According to the clues on the battlefield, Mary killed 326 pirates. The destruction around her was caused by the pirates throwing anything they could to take her down. The raid lasted for three cycles, during which Mary faced pirate attacks at least every hour. Her parents' arrival was something I dreaded, but they didn't seem angry to me. They were worried about her, obviously. But if anything, they seemed proud of her, more than anything. Mary was recovering slowly, but surely. Humans sure were something else. The news spread like wildfire. The galaxy was at awe at the humans and rightfully angry at the pirates. Mary recovered enough to talk nine cycles later, during which she refused to receive more money than the one agreed on for babysitting, claiming that she was just performing her duties. Quite the noble thing to do, considering that our government offered her a good amount of money. Mary became a celebrity, and with her the human's prowess and babysitters. Mary achieved a full recovery after 100 cycles. Shortly after, 134 cycles after the raid, the human armada in its entirety received permission to move against the pirates that raided my planet. It's been 156 cycles since that day. Mary is visiting us. She talks to us about how she was granted a scholarship to her favorite university, the only thing that she did accept as a reward. While laughing, she also tells us how babysitting became really profitable for humans. There's a special reason why she's with us this night. Today is the day the human armada flies above us before entering pirate territory. The sky is filled with lights from human spaceships. While looking at the sky with my family, I can't avoid feeling grateful that we got a human babysitter. End 
of story. Story number two, Human Death, written by Space Orcs Collector. It was a magnificent hall, grander than any mortal could dream of, and dwelling in that hall were beings more terrifying than any mind could fathom. And one word could encompass them all. Death. These beings were different deaths of beings across the universe. For an aquatic species, ultimate death would be a volcano, boiling water in which they live. For the silicate species, ultimate death would be a tsunami, which would send them to the depths away from everything. For a herbivore species, ultimate death would be a predator, an unstoppable and remorseless killing machine. For a void-worn species, ultimate death would be gravity, the limitless and crushing power of matter. In such a place, one might right assume that nothing could affect these titans, but that is not true, for a rumor began to spread that a death not seen in eons will be coming. The death of humans, every being imagined him differently, he might be a predator, a natural disaster, maybe a force of nature. What could be a thing that kills the most humans? It might even be all-ending false of entropy. No one knew for sure. While everyone thought and pondered, a small black-hooded farmer wearing a tattered black cloak, holding an old worn but well-kept scythe, entered the hall. He went unnoticed amidst the giants around him, but if you really concentrated, you could feel him come in. Feel a small drop in temperature wherever he went. As if atoms themselves respected his presence and slowed down for him to pass. Hello, everyone. I see some new faces around. Every face in the room turned simultaneously to the source of the sound, but no one could see a being that such a commanding yet soft voice belonged to. They were all looking at their own height, and no one was in front of them. It was a predator, the smallest of all titans who noticed the hooded figure, noticed and laughed. <laughs> was it you who spoke to us, great being, small one? I did, for I am a death, just as you lot are. Silence marked the end of his sentence, followed immediately by rolling laughter and mocking calls. <laughs> You're a death! <laughs> Another weak race joined. Wrong hole. Puny creature. How can you strike fear like that? I think you're all mistaken. And why would I be mistaken? Asked the farmer calmly. There is something you don't understand, sloshed the tsunami. All of us are death and destruction incarnate, the destroyers of civilizations, enders of species, extinguishers of life. But you are not. The hooded farmer opened up an empty eye socket with a soft sound of bone cracking. You are tiny, rumbled the volcano in turn. You look weak. You cannot even take a soul, let alone extinct species. That is why you should not be here. That is your mistake. The condescending attitude oozing out of him as much as the molten rock. The predator circles the farmer, who is a tenth of his size, and whispers, Besides... Whose weak being's death are you? Who would be scared of you? 
humans. All the dents stopped dead in the tracks. Repeat that, said Gravity. I'm the death of humans, stated the farmer. Are you mocking us? Is this some kind of sick joke? Stormed the tsunami. The farmer took a deep breath to his non-existent lungs. His breath chilled the room, and with an air of reverence around him he began. A thing you new deaths don't understand is that size and brutality is not equal to power. Extending his bony hand with his palm upwards, a projection of a green and blue marble upon it, all the while continuing to talk. All of you instill the fear of death into the beings that already gave up. When you take a soul, it is trembling and begging for mercy. You have never had someone fight you. You have never had to see what it is like taking a soul that refuses to go, no matter what. Having to drag it kicking and screaming away from the one that will die a second time to protect its loved ones. All of you take the form of being's greatest threat and fear. So have I. It was why I respected my humans. No predator can kill them, no tsunami drown them, no volcano burn them, and no gravity hold them. Only a human can take a human. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1497 Artillery Bombardment Part 1 Written by Ordnant For cycles, we had been war with the Flynn. A bloody war the galactic community thought too low of a squabble to interfere in. Even when disregarded, the war resulted in the deaths of billions. Our war, to them, was only the war of two backwater star-faring nations. Too far away to help, yet close enough to tax. How to rubbish, you ask me. But how can we even demand our rights to be upheld when our fleets are being torn apart, our worlds burning? I've heard stories that the galactic community supposedly thought of raising the monthly fee they demand like overlords, all in the name of better protecting us. I wonder where their protection was when Eidolon 7 burned. Where were our defenders when one of our core worlds, Holand 2, was fractured and torn asunder with those still unfortunate enough to be on it, destined to suffer horrific deaths? Our politicians made one last plea recently, one last cry before our entire people may just end up cast into the void by the Flen. The news on this meeting was quiet at first. Nobody expected anything. Nothing had happened for cycles from these pointless, pathetic shows the community put on. However, on some news broadcasts, there were stories of a new member of the community. Human. Or something along those lines. Another to ignore our desperate begging, all while lining their pockets, to be sure. Our politicians had returned with tears streaming down their faces, as finally, finally, someone would come to their aid. The people didn't seem to believe it. Most certainly not me. Not after being in so many pointless last stands. Seeing how overwhelmingly we were losing to the Flynn. How could this newer nation even assist us? This far gone. We wouldn't even be able to repay them. 
My thoughts continued into a downward spiral, even more so as I was shipped out to another core world under attack. Helio. It didn't have a number designation. This was a true home planet to us. One I didn't mind dying on, even if it was worthless in the end. A quarter into the cycle of my shipment out to Helio, and I'm now in a trench taking potshots at the Flynn as their weapons of war approach us. The disadvantage we had against them is laughable. We were never good with war, so we gave up on it as a species, focused on other things. See how far that got us now. Crap! Enough monologuing. The Flynn are coming. Sergeant Yeren, my name was called out by my commander as he trudged towards me. His hooves nimbly winding their way through the muddy trench. I hear we've got reinforcements coming. Uh, we should only have to hold out for another hour at the least. My heart sank. Another hour? Of this? The sounds of weapons fire and explosions causing my ears to ring and my antennae to shrink down. Yet even while my body was growing concerned for its survival... I was mentally used to this by now. Another hour, sir. There's just no way that we can hold out for that long. The Flint, Sergeant, I know. We just have to do what we can for this one hour and pray that the stars it's enough. My commander spoke in a tired voice and lifted himself briefly over the trench, firing off a few pot shots. It resulted in an intense explosion, and I was worried one of the war machines of the Flynn had returned fire. So I snapped my head up to look at my commander. He was still there, however. His face had become slack, his eyes wide in surprise. The explosion rang out, again and again. The entire battlefield before my eyes had turned to plumes of smoke and shrapnel. The explosions didn't seem to be letting up either, and as I turned my gaze to the sky, it was darkened. I was horrified. The sky only darkened in such a way when something was about to damage the very planet. C-c-c-commander, the, the sky is darkening. The commander looked up, yet he didn't seem afraid. In fact, he seemed confused. Not like that, Sergeant. I've seen those skies before. This is far different and, uh, early. They said an hour. Just as he finished speaking, a bipedal creature jumped in. I was too shocked to even try and point my gun at the creature, who soon spoke. An hour? Holy hell! Did you guys mistranslate us or what? We told your high command it'll take us about ten minutes to get set up, and another five minutes to get boots on the ground over here. The creature seemed disgruntled, and only then did I find my voice. You... you're a human. One of the new members of the community. Why are you... My voice trailed off deafening by the sound of the explosions. When would those ever stop? Yep, I'm what you call a human, though that whole community thing is just for show, so those slimy bastards will leave us alone. How could we truly side with pricks who would leave an entire world to burn like this? The human's face contorted. Its eyes were filled with anger, strong enough to cause not just me, but even my commander to backpedal a few steps. It seemed to notice and raised its hands. Ah, forgive me. I've heard Xenos can be a bit flaky when presented with the full brunt of our emotions like that. Uh, don't worry, we're on your side, so is that. It pointed to the explosions as it seemed to finally cease. 
Ship-to-surface bombardment with weaponry we've used for centuries. Massive guns always get the job done. Or, as it is called on the ground, artillery. These, uh, what were they? Uh, Flynn? Yeah? They don't stand a chance. The creature seemed to puff out its chest before taking a more focused look at it seemed to receive communications. We can't stand around anymore. First volley was a test run to see how well it fared within this atmosphere. And if the planet could handle more, get everyone to leave these trenches and fall back to your nearest base. Those shells are about to get a lot bigger. End of Part 1 Story 2 Artillery Bombardment Part 2 Written by Ordnant Perspective Ocenti Sergeant Urin The human had told us to fall back, and my commander relayed that order. With haste, our entire battalion pulled back from the front. I led my squad as we ran across the war-torn ground towards our nearest base. If it could even be considered a base. It was more of a hurried outpost built solely for logistics. I focused my thoughts on moving my legs, and on the human and its own soldiers managing to run with ease along the ground despite being bipedal. Another thing I was beginning to notice was the difference in stamina. These humans, do they ever get tired? I grumbled to myself and could hear others around me doing the same, as their legs were certainly complaining the same as mine. Focus! We're nearing the base. After what felt like hours of running, but had been only nearly a single hour at most, we were through the gates. We shuffled inside, yet the humans who had taken the lead stood outside, gazing off towards the battlefield. What are you all looking at? Did the Flynn follow us? I panicked for a moment, my grip tightening around the handle of my weapon. A stranded plasma bolter was issued to everyone in our army, a far cry from the Flynn's weaponry in terms of effectiveness. However, both looked completely different from the weapons humanity used. Huh? Oh yeah, um, it seems like it, uh, but, but they're still pretty far back. The initial shelling seemed to stun them for a while. The human turned away and began speaking in some strange language. It was only now I realized that we had been speaking in my native language without any issue. I was so used to my own language that I hadn't noticed an alien who was also speaking my language, and fluently at that. The human was speaking into a device and to the soldiers around him, relaying information and orders most likely. I stood and waited for them to finish. They turned back to face me with somehow unfaced look, even though it had just admitted that the enemy was closing in on us. Now that we've fallen back and the ships in orbit know the target area is clear, they can finally fire for effect. The human gazed back out at the battlefield. I followed the human's gaze, looking out onto the battlefield. I could see them faintly, the war machines of the Flen. I shook my body to the core. I was out in the open, exposed to their weapons. I had to run. Death was coming for me. A firm grip on my shoulder stabilized me and I could see the group of human soldiers gazing down at me with worried expressions. My breathing was out of rhythm, and my twin hearts were thumping irregularly. Calm down, Sergeant. Those machines aren't in range, and I assure you that they won't make it much further. The human's voice helped soothe my worry. It was a soft voice, even amidst the battle. Yet, when I looked up, the one who spoke, the raw anger was back from the last time. This time, however... 
This emotion came from each human. It was overwhelming. The human who had spoken to me spoke once again, this time in its language. Or at least, what I thought was its language. Give these bastards hell, Captain Jiro. The humans around the one speaking moved their heads up and down in the same gesture. Their piercing gazes stared down at the field in wait. In the next moment, a whistling sound filled my ears. No, it had filled the very air itself. A shadow loomed over our heads, and in the next moment, the planet shook. Where the Flynn machines once stood on as unstoppable menaces, only smoke remained. The ground was littered with craters as the rumbling continued. I could hear the sum of my own kind screams. One of the screams may have been my voice. The very planet was shaking. A horror beyond horror for us. My commander strode out and stopped once he caught sight of what remained of the battlefield. Even he seemed stunned. But as expected of a commander, he quickly collected himself and turned to face the humans. That shaking, was it you? Will the planet be fine? My commander's voice held a mixture of distrust and fear. How saviors could potentially be demons themselves. I could easily understand his thoughts in this. The humans seemed to pause for a moment, long enough to cause my heart to sink. Well, uh, the planet will be fine, but y you probably won't be doing much farming in this area for a while. Uh, sorry about that. The human scratched its chin and lowered its head briefly in front of the commander. The planet will be fine. The commander and I each let out a breath, our hearts slowly calming down. Thank you, humans. You have defended our home and no one else has. The commander crossed his front legs together and lowered his head, a sign of true thanks. You're talking like this is over. A smile played out on the human slips, and the rest followed suit. It sent fear racing down our spines. The smile of a predator with its prey within its grasp. We still have to fully remove the Flen's presence from this planet. Then after that, we reclaim your lost systems. Then after that, I'd be a retaliatory strike into Flen territory. Get them to surrender, then it's our diplomat's job. One of the humans suddenly slung a bag over their shoulder and pulled some of slab from it. A data pad from the looks of it. The human spoke in its language, though the tone was far different from the other. Sir, we've got the coordinates of the nearest Flen outpost and possible sightings of their supply routes. Intelligence says that they are tracing back and the supply routes and checking where other bases are. Then most will be marked for bombardment. I see. So that makes our job clearing out this outpost and any other base command deemed worthy while searching the bases for information. Understood, Specialist Manova. Keep me updated. The human finished, speaking and looking back at my commander. It once again articulated with ease in our language again. We have orders to head to the nearest plan base and capture it, then search it. There'll be two platoons left here for defense and communication. The human raised their hand on top of their head before turning around. Wait! Our commander spoke a moment before I could. You're already going to move out. Don't you need to recover and rest, aren't you? Uh, he didn't finish the sentence, but the rest was obvious. Aren't they afraid? How are they not afraid to charge into enemy territory? The commander gazed at them questioningly. The human let out a breath through its nostrils before speaking. Sir! You don't win walls by spending vital time recovering and resting. The Flynn are reeling from this blow. 
and we need to keep the pressure on. It's been an honor to personally fight by your side. The human repeated its previous gesture of moving its hand to its forehead. Let's move out! The human shouted in its own language again and turned away from the commander. The squad of humans walked away together towards the beaten and battered battlefield that awaited them. Commander, I spoke without realizing it, my eyes shifting to focus on him. Yeah, I know, we might truly be saved. The commander sniffed and tightened his grip on his weapon. The air the commander was giving off was different. You heard what the human said, Sergeant Yearn. The Unsanti must learn to strike back. We've only been defending ourselves since the war began. Always too stunned and afraid to truly fight back. He went quiet for a moment and faced me fully. His eyes steeled with determination. It is time that we change that bit by bit. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1498 The Humans Said No Written by Sion Bartson Jax sweated as she finished her last set of squats for the day. She'd gotten used to the centrifuge, everything outside had spinning wildly while her bones and muscles got the reminder of what gravity was like. Why couldn't this device have included instructions for artificial gravity, she wondered. She made sure to towel down thoroughly before shutting off the centrifuge. Her first time working up a sweat on it and she'd shut it down right away and ended spending the next four hours chasing after floating drops of sweat before they could damage any of the electronics. Jack tore open the cleaning cloth and wiped herself down, removing sweat and dead skin cells that could be hazardous to the delicate electronics. The cloth captured all of the moisture and, when placed in recovery, wrung it out and purified and recycled. By this point, she was sure that she was drinking the stored water of the third or fourth time. When the device was first discovered, a five-year-old Jax had no idea that they'd uncovered its secrets in her lifetime, even less of a clue that she'd be the one picked as ambassador. Why me? she asked herself often. The committee had made their choice plain. They needed a pilot with an understanding of politics. Not a lot of those around. As a colonel in the Air Force, she was on the verge of acceptance into NASA when her master's degrees in political science reared its ugly head. She'd been reassigned to the U.S. Space Force, strapped into this, uh, contraption, and told to go make a good case for humanity. Of course, that ignores the whirlwind tour through the halls of governance of nearly every major nation. The craft she piloted was built by a joint effort of NASA, JAXA, ECF, Roscosmos, CNSA, ISRO, and who knows how many multinational corporations. The controls were based on the F-39E that she flew in the Air Force. The engines, though, were something that you'd expect to come from the mad scientist's lab. And the box strapped down beside the bulkhead, the one that was in the device, was maddeningly resistant to any effort to figure out how it worked. So, yes, she was, currently traveling at, she checked the readouts, over 200 times the speed of light, and still accelerating at what would be somewhere in the range of 20 to 30 Gs. Yeah, inside the bubble, though, it was as though she was unmoving. Rather than think about it, 
She dressed in a soft, one-piece coverall that acted as an undergarments for her uniform and for her EVA suit. Not that she'd need to do an EVA, nor could she while she was traveling faster than light, but, you know, just in case. And on takeoff and landing. Years of piloting made her aware of the most dangerous times for any flight, takeoff and landing. Everything between was gravy, unless someone was shooting at you. Hey, Box, she said. Yes, Jax. Its voice was flat and artificial. How long did you watch Earth? 1,104 rotations around the sun. Rounding. Nice. Thanks for not telling me at the 14th decimal place this time. That's your rotations in Jupiter, Trojans. How about Earth years? 13,096. Nice, rounding up. You keep learning like that and I might have to name you. I have no need for a name. Jack scrolled through her tablet, looking at the past lessons. You say there are 22 member species in the Union. As of the last update, I received 97 and a half years ago. I wish you had pictures of them. The text is interesting, but it doesn't really say anything about what they look like. If such pictures existed in my knowledge stores, I would send them to your tablet. I know, Box. I know. She chuckled to herself in the monitor before recording her daily log. It wouldn't do to look anything less than thoroughly professional. Her hair didn't look too different than it had in gravity, owing to the tight curls. She smiled her single dimple on her right cheek making itself known. That's why they sent a black woman, she thought, so they don't have to look at crazy hair floating all over. Daily Log, Colonel Jacks Walker, on day uh, 91. I should be reaching the gate in another 31 hours, give or take. I've been through the lexicon of the pronunciation practice enough times that I should be able to reasonably be fluent. There are some glaring omissions from the lexicon, however, putting me in a position where it's impossible to talk about certain concepts in their language at all. I'll do my best to get to the point across, but uh, I feel like we might have to be purposely hamstrung in that regard. All systems are optimal, med shows I'm fine, with little muscle and bone density lost, um, to be expected. Walk her out. When the countdown showed that she was approaching the gate, she held her breath. Well, Vox, our gate worked, Let's hope that this one does too. If the gate didn't work the way they thought, she might just keep accelerating in a warp bubble until the fuel ran out. What happened then would be anyone's guess, as they were dealing with technology that used physics no human had yet deciphered. She watched the countdown clock and the estimated speed, 223 times the speed of light. The countdown clock hit zero, and the estimated speed did as well. No flash, no weird distortion, nothing. Just hanging in space near a massive station. Looks just like the picture, Jack said. Welcome to command station, the voice on the comms said in their language. Human vessel, first contact command station, permission to dock. Automated docking sequence begun. Do not attempt to pilot your vessel. Jack sat back and watched as the ship glided into the opening dock. The door shut behind her as soon as she felt the ship sit down. You guys have artificial gravity? She asked the squat box behind her. It would appear so, it said. Why didn't you share that with us? I do not have that in my knowledge, stars, along with half your language. 
Jax was about to go on another rant about the lacking lexicon when the ship's doors opened and a machine of four legs entered. Greetings, Ambassador. We will go to the Council Chamber. It said in their language as it picked up the box. It is good that you brought a biological sample along. Biological sample? Jax asked. And it speaks our language. The machine turned its senses around Facer. You may follow us. Jack stepped in front of the machine. You seem to be uh, mistaken. No word for that. She shook her head in frustration. I am the ambassador. That is the teaching machine. If the machine had any thoughts about that, it didn't voice them, but led her to the council chambers. Once inside, it placed the box and a pedestal that connected to the other machines in the chamber, and Jax's tablet chimed. She silenced it. Where are the other ambassadors? I was told there were 22 member species. These are the ambassadors, each dealing rationally for the best interest of their assigned species. The word she'd been searching for earlier came to her. You are wrong. This is wrong. I am the ambassador for the humans. And more are to come. Every nation wants to set their own deals, and not with a bunch of machines. That is not the way of things are done in the Union. If your species is to join, the ambassador machine will represent you. The council will give you some time to think it over. With that, the four-legged machine unplugged the box from the pedestal and led it back to a ship, which locked itself shut once she was on board. Jack sat on the box. Did you know about this? I did, it said. I tried to explain it, but you kept on about human concepts. So, uh, the Union is a collection of vassal states to whatever machine empire made you and the device. Each member is allowed to determine for themselves how to trade, govern, and wage war amongst themselves. The Union merely sets out the minimum rules for governance and handles trade between the species. Interspecies war is forbidden and has never happened in the history of the Union. 168,000 years of peace. When you're plugged in there, did you get updates from the other machines? Yes. Because you were curious, I sent images of the other 23 species to your tablet. One species has joined since my last update. I also sent all the data available on artificial gravity. I could find no further lexicon for our language. How about other languages? I did not access member languages except to upload the 93 Earth languages that I had acquired. I can tell you that there are 8,211 languages in the known Lich stalls. When you get back in, and they plug you in, Send me the top two most widely spoken languages for each of the other member species. And, if you can find their gate coordinates, send me that as well. Do you wish to learn more languages and navigation? Uh, yes. Y- y- yes, I do. Very well. It is my job to educate, uplift, and represent your people. Jack spent the next hour lying on the cold metal floor. The gravity in the station wasn't full earth gravity, but was close enough to feel comfortable. Even there... She was surprised at how much her back and joints missed the feeling. She was very nearly asleep when the box roused her. They are returning. Once again, she followed the machine to the chamber where the box was plugged in once again. Within a moment, she felt her tablet vibrate. Has the ambassador been accepted? The machine asked. I will speak, Jack said. But since your language lacks certain words, I'll be explaining in English. She waited for a moment. Since I know you all have it downloaded now, I'll begin. Jax pulled the tablet out and began scrolling through the pictures of the member species, doing her best to mask how uneasy some of them made her feel. 
I have here the pictures of the member species of this union, yet I see none of them represented here. What I don't see in these pictures or any of the text about the union and its members are the machines. All of you here claim to represent biological creatures without having anything to compare it to. Someone had to build the first machines, so is it one of the member species? The box there, the one that taught us your language, and how to build a gate, and how to get here, the one that invited humanity to join the Union, doesn't know. While we are not averse to setting up diplomatic relations with machine intelligence, we are not the sort to blindly follow a machine built and controlled by we don't know who. She put the tablet back in a pocket. Humans will be meeting with the other members of the Union and will work on creating trade and diplomatic relations with them, one by one. We will not be vassal state or give up any part of the things for which your language has no words. Self-determination, political autonomy, the right to protest, the right to free speech, the right to make our own mistakes, and the right to correct them. At the very least, we will not give up the rights set forth in the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and every nation may have other rights their citizens are entitled to. Citizens. Another word you do not have. Not just an individual in a population, but a member of a nation-state entitled to the rights and subject to the responsibilities of that nation. Jax pulled the tablet out again and swiped through. She had the plans for artificial gravity, 41 languages, and the location of 23 more gates. Having the data that I need, I leave the box here with you. Our history, our physiological data, and petabytes of our art are included. We leave this as a gift to the machines, and hope that you will share them with your member worlds. We are not perfect, and we will not hide that fact. You, ambassadors, though, must come to terms with the fact that, despite being machines, neither are you perfect. With that said, humanity will not be joining the Union. Jack spun on her heel and headed out of the chamber. She had almost reached the ship when she felt the powerful, mechanical claws close around her arm. You may not leave with the data that you have stolen from the Union, the machine said in perfect English. Jack sighed and handed the machine her tablet. She watched as it crushed the tablet and ground it to a fine powder. Arsehole. The machine released her. Your ship will be removed from the landing bay and autopilot, and a security ship will escort you to the gate. If humanity wishes to join the Union at a later date, you or another human may return to inform us of your decision. The security ship was the size of a skyscraper, bristling with weapons. 168,000 years apiece doesn't result in ships like that, she muttered to herself. Once she had passed through the gate and was accelerating on her way home, Jax opened the storage compartment above a sleeping hammock. She pulled out a tablet there and fired it up before sitting at the console. Daily log of Colonel Jax Walker on day 93. I think, um, I'm on my way back home. The gate works the way we thought. Joining the Union is a bust. The box was meant to be our ambassador and make all our decisions regarding trade and interspecies relations. That would also impose the Union's restrictions on our own laws from a bunch of machines that don't understand basic rights. The Union is not a true Union. It is a machine hegemony. Still, no data on who built them, on whether they were running the whole thing from the shadows. I lost a tablet to one of the machines, and ground it to powder. The backup works fine. The autosync worked perfectly. I'm coming back with more information about the other 23 member species. 
their most widely spoken languages, and the location of their gates. As a bonus, I also have plans for artificial gravity. If the air gates can make heads or tails of it. All systems are optimal. Med shows I'm fine. Walk her out. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1499. Story number two. Human, what is this luck you speak of? Written by Random3x. Greville walked into the control room and noticed that human Keith was displaying signs of emotional distress that he had learned to recognize at the Working with Dirtling Ceremonar. Being the representative of the interspecies relations, Greville felt it necessary to approach human Keith and offer assistance. Is everything okay, human Keith? he asked. Huh? Oh yeah, uh, I'm alright, I'm just having a bad luck day. Keith replied with a shrug. Ah, I understand it is, uh, apologies, human Keith, but what is this luck, and how has it made your rotation negative? Greeble asked, worried that it was some kind of parasite that he would have to report. Um, you know, luck. Just lots of minor bad things that are happening. Clearly, I've used up my karma for the week. Keith replied with a light chuckle. Another new word. Karma and luck. These must be potent illnesses to flare up and infect a sentient's entire day. Do you require a visit to medical suites to have these karma and luck purged? Greeble offered. What? No. I think you misunderstood things. Luck isn't an illness, Greeble. Keith explained, raising his hands to stop the encroaching Greeble. Uh, How can I explain this? Keith said, stroking his stubbled chin. Ah, I know. So today my battery died, so my alarm didn't go off. Then, when I was in a rush to get ready, I I, I stopped my little toe. Keith paused to ensure that Greeble was following. Indeed, that seems most distressing, Greeble nodded. Then, as I got to the hover car and flew here, I got hit by red lights at every single intersection. Finally, uh, when I did get here, an executive had taken my parking spot, so I had to park a quad over and walk in, all the while hobbling on my hurt foot. Keith finished by taking a long sip of his cup of coffee. I understand these are all events that have happened, human Keith, but I fail to see how these are connected events related to this thing that you call luck, Greeble asked, now even more confused. Well, uh, luck is what we call the force that dictates these things are going to happen, Keith explained, looking up into Greeble's three eyes. All uh, negative events, Greeble was now shocked. Well, uh, good stuff can also happen because of luck, uh, like Mike won the competition last month. That was lucky, Keith hastily explained, realizing that Greeble was becoming worried. And humans observe this phenomenon, Greeble asked, ensuring his translator unit didn't convey the growing terror in his true voice was radiating. All the time, Keith said with a shrug. You also mentioned karma. Is this similar? Greeble asked. Kinda. It's more like you do good things and good things will happen to you. We, uh, humans, equate that with getting positive luck. Well, bad luck is because of bad stuff that we must have done, Keith explained, taking another sip of his tea. Greville was now terrified. The humans were famous for picking up on details often missed by other races. If this luck were real, then it would be a universe shattering. Speaking of the degree of control, not thought imaginable. For these beings to notice it, they must mean that they are far more intelligent than anyone could fathom. Have there been studies into this luck? 
Greaver asked, hoping to have sources to pull from. Huh? Keith said, confused. Why would we study it? It's just probability and human pattern recognition, Keith explained with an arched brow. Say again? Greaver asked, now even more confused. Humans' brains are built to notice patterns, like that stain on the window that looks like a face. Keith pointed to the smudge on the window with three dots. Greville could have sworn that he heard a panicked scream when the human Keith did this. When we were evolving, we noticed patterns, and the ones that kept focused and recognized the bad ones survived. So our brains are weirdly focused on remembering the bad events. We just attribute it to something nebulous like um, luck, Keith explained. Like I'll remember today because of lots of minor inconveniences, but I'm not going to remember the day that I hit nothing but green lights and got to work on time, Keith said, giving the most apt example that he could think of. You have given me much to think about, human Keith, Greville said with a nod as he walked back to his office, hoping that human Keith wasn't paying attention. He noted that humans have a para-universal abilities to see beyond reality. Sitting down, Greeble could only exhale. Humans were interesting and, at the same time, terrifying. It was no wonder there was a universal leave-them-alone order. End of story. Story number one. Peace Talks, written by Echoing Cascade. General Rain was an incompetent coward. The problem was that as far as everyone else was concerned, he was a genuine hero. Rain. I reached the exalted rank of general by sheer luck, hiding when running was not an option, and had gotten credit for several miraculous victories by virtue of being the only officer alive when the dust settled. Rain mused on his glorious career, which was thankfully coming to an end. The diplomats had finally managed to convince the religious Thormak that they couldn't win a war against Earth and its allies, that while they may be immortal gods, the soldiers were but flesh and bone. He sighed wearily. All right, just one more diplomatic meeting and this whole sorry affair will be over. Gods, give me strength. Make me stone so my enemies may break and shatter as we clash. His silent prayer finished. He entered the meeting room at a large prefabricated house built on neutral ground. The meeting had been a trap. The retinue of the Thormic gods had brought with them were filled with organic explosives and had blown themselves up alongside the bulk of the security personnel. The Thormic honor guard then killed anyone who might fight back that had survived. Rain was now clad in chains presented in front of the Thormic gods. The filming crew that was present for the peace talks had been forced at gunpoint to broadcast the scene. The father, leader of the Thormak, approached him and snapped him across the face. You vile heretic! Rain tanked the hit without a problem and with the best devil-may-care grin he could fake. All right, don't crap your pants and keep eye contact. There are cameras watching you. The general reminded himself. I believe your grace hasn't grasped the idea of peace talks. Would you like me to explain it to your head priest? He looked around the room and spotted what was left of the exploded Thormak priest and nodded in his direction, though uh, he looks to be a bit indisposed at the moment. No matter, I have nothing else to do. I can wait. The father didn't smile and gestured at the camera crew to make a close-up of the general. 
Say what you want, Marshal. Soon your death will be broadcast all over the sector, and your soldiers will break. Rain was perplexed, and for a moment the sheer stupidity of the statement overtook his focus on survival. I'm sorry, um, you think my death would break the army's morale and bring you victory? Father nodded and smiled. Without your leadership, your soldiers will wither and die. Rain was by no stretch of the imagination patriotic. He had joined the army because it seemed like a good idea at the time, and because the notion of war with other species was laughable. But even he found the slight on the Terran army insulting. Rain. My soldiers will wither and die. My soldiers will rage. If you are gods, then every one of my soldiers is a pantheon. You will burn. He was quite shocked at his own outburst, not certain where that had come from. A few minutes passed in stunned silence. The father eventually rallied and approached the general, who had begun to blink rapidly in what he assumed was distress. No, mortal. It is you who shall burn. He snapped his fingers, and one of his guards gave him a hand-held flamethrower. He was taking aim when a strange sound stopped his movements. What is that? You're right, sir. Today I burn. What is the meaning of this? I brought the flames. The general closed his eyes, certain his number was finally up as the bomber began its run. He was calm and serene. The notion that it was finally over brought him more peace of mind than would have thought possible. Guards, give me strength. Make me a stone so my enemies may break and shatter as we clash. Then the nuclear explosion obliterated the building. The decapitating strike had been ruled out by high command. Killing the Thormek god would be too destabilizing for their society, they claimed, but... As the general blinked, Nuke them! Frack their religion! Colonel Miriam, who had responded to the attack on the peace talks, chose to honor Rain's final orders. The death of their gods brought chaos to the Thormic theocracy, as was expected, but it did bring closure to the war. The Thormac people, having seen their gods die, live on Holonet, abandoned their religion in surprisingly quick order. In the fullness of time, a new religion... The Order of Stone rose amongst the Thormac. It was built around a single, well-known prayer. Gods, give me strength. Make me a stone so my enemies may break and shatter as we clash. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1500 Story number one. The Void Monkeys, written by Sun Praising. Venez watched the humans repay ship. Said ship was one of the smaller space logistical freighters that distributed goods from hub worlds to smaller colonies. It was damaged by a bad exit from warp space too close to an asteroid field. Nothing life-threatening happened, but he had to repair his ship. This was pretty normal. Most Fnafians like him paid humans to repair their ships. It was pretty fast, not too expensive and allowed them to stay in the ships to do whatever while they waited for the repairs to be done. He always wondered about why people still did jobs like these. Almost everything is automated. 
future. Robots are either remote controlled or wanky with non-database ships at best if automated. But they don't live, so it doesn't matter if one of them sailed off into the endless void or got hit by many asteroids or had a sealant leak. A loud clunk pulled him from his thoughts as one of the humans first knocked against the glass and then signaled him to go to the auto-translated voice chat on channel 16 of the ship. Vinez typed a few buttons into his personal assistant to join in, and was promptly greeted by the cheerful welcoming humans are known for amongst space logistic pilots. Greetings, I, I hope I didn't disturb you. I was seeing you looking at your work process and was wondering if I can answer any questions you might have. Actually, I, I have one. How come you work with this job? As far as I know, only humans are willing to do vacuum repairs. Almost everyone else uses robots or pays you. You see, there isn't much else that we can do. As a non-plague welders, it would be actually be more dangerous to be inside a multi-species ship than outside. But, wait. I thought only plague welders are allowed in the galactic community. More or less correct. We're officially not part of it. Still need to make money, though. But... I take the dangerous jobs like vacuum maintenance and repair. Why not? I don't know. Financing? Because all jobs, even those where only communication is required, are more efficient if you can actually talk. Or at least see each other. So, no niche for us. Also, they almost always require some kind of assets or money, which we don't have. But it's dangerous. We can use robots, mothers. Robots are expensive to code and bad at improvising. We can do the job better. And sure, when something goes wrong with the results, we're pretty sure to die. But uh, we have engineered them pretty good to not fail. Also, if it does out here, it's only one. If it were to happen in a multi-species atmosphere, we could potentially take in a plague with a long incubation time that wipes out an entire ship or away more. Well, makes sense, I guess. Um, but why work at all? All the other non-plague world races seem to do fine on their own little biosphere in their home system. You see, uh, non-plague worlders don't really get any communication, technology, or even protection from the galactic community. The new warning and communication beacons that pop up in their systems are usually paid for by humans since they require community tech and thus cannot be bought or produced without some kind of connection to the community. I see why, yes. And while we as a race are not really decisive or even politically united, we do value freedom, and most of us think these civilizations should at least have some basic technology boost and the ability to communicate with others. We combed the stars for centuries while nobody in the community bothered to even show themselves to us because we were just non-plague welders. Well, some of us made a primitive warp drive, made a small outpost outside of the containment zone, as every homeworld of a non-plague world has, with a strict no-coming-back policy and starting to working, so others can at least know they're not alone. Venice went silent as he needed some time to think about it. Anyways, uh, the ship's not gonna fix itself. The human seemingly thought the conversation to be over, indicated by a small beep that signaled that the participant left the voice link. The Fenafian then continued to stare off into the vast void, thinking 
about how he valued his safe job and what he would have done as a human. End of story. Story number two. A puzzle begs to be solved. Written by Adriel. It started with a simple message buried on some space rock. Three long numbers etched in glass and impossibly detailed. The craftsmanship alone made it a curiosity. But the message was even more mysterious. Myra scientists puzzled over it for weeks. Every cipher, coordinate scheme and mathematical operation turned up nothing. News spread. Theories were proposed. Soon the entire planet of Ayara was talking about it. A treasure hunt had begun. Now the Myra were a secretive bunch. A caste system is built into their DNA, which caste is on top is constantly changing. As political maneuvers and espionage do their work. When the Myra chose to follow the clues, several groups were formed. They did not like sharing resources. The eyes of the Myra changed color during childhood based on the emotion they felt most strongly. When the warrior cast took to the challenge, their crimson eyes indicated passion. The red-eyed warrior cast used their fleet of warships to scour the galaxy for clues. Another cast was known for their dedication to science, with the iron-gray eyes and cold and dispassionate mind. They dug into the numbers, trying to find a pattern that would give them a clue. The Iron Eyes eventually found a statistical anomaly. Certain strings of numbers were more common than random chance would dictate. Mapping the entire string onto 3D space using the anomalies as points created a star map with an obvious destination. A deal was proposed. The Grey Eyes would let the warrior cast visit the destination using the scout ships, in exchange for information on what they found. The scout ships dropped out of warp above the abandoned outpost of some kind. It wasn't on any maps, and any indication who built it was stripped away. Another glass plate was found at the center of the structure. On it was a diagram of set of icons that didn't match any known language. The warriors honored their agreement, giving a full scan to the Iron Eyes. It seemed... The scientists would have the edge soon. The icons described a hydrogen atom during phase transition. This establishment units for time and distance. Another series of icons were discovered to be pulsars. Using other information, it was possible to derive the position and flashing patterns of each pulsar. Another map had been discovered. This one was significantly closer to Myra space. So a science vessel was dispatched. A small exoplanet was found at its destination. Curiously, despite lacking a star or atmosphere, simple microbial life thrived there. Samples were taken, and another clue was found encoded into their genome. A game of clue hunting continued for some time. The genome led to a hidden site of Galnet, which pointed to a specific patch of cosmic microwave background. The color map matched the height map on a well-known planet which contained another glass plate. Hidden asteroid after obscure map after mathematic curiosity kept the Myra busy for over two months. As it turned out, there were several possible paths to the destination. The same cosmic microwave background map led to a nebula, another clue hidden, and the microbe genome contained an audio file. 
several different cars began hunting, and no amount of secrecy could cover every trail. A curiosity had spanned into a race involving thousands of Myra. Even pirates got involved. One notable case involving a glass plate being stolen and sold in exchange for the top-of-the-line warship. The Myra had made the mistake of getting personal. A handful of high-ranking members started to believe that the treasure would be incredible. Competition led to open hostilities, and even a handful of conflicts where lives were lost. Before things could really spiral out of hand, an unlikely victor was crowned. Amber, the color of empathy, marked the eyes of the one who found the final clue. She was a skilled diplomat and managed to talk a number of the Galatech traders out of their clues. The final clue was a single video console in the middle of an empty room. As soon as she entered, Universal Translator spooled up and a message played. A human woman gave a pre-recorded speech. Congratulations, you have solved the puzzle. That process wasn't cheap. Fleets of scientists, military resources, and no small number of political favors were spent to crack the clues. Competition led to distrust, infighting, and at least one battle between your own forces. We count 2,000 lives lost. I must admit that this surprised us. The entire treasure hunt was crafted by a small team over two weeks. Every clue used cheap and readily available technology. Ryla Volt, head of psychological warfare for the Terran Defense Fleet. There is a war coming, and I would like to offer our services. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1501. Story number one. From ear to ear, written by Lords of Dupe. The humans are smiling now. Our race, one and all, we shared everything freely. Once we'd beaten and starved each other to our fullest extents and had brokered hard-earned peace between our respective cultures. Of course, not all of the original races survived the process and they are sorely missed. Because hindsight functions so superbly when you're drying your own bloodied hands on the pages of the history you author. That nonsense aside, we should have roused ourselves to war and exterminate the humans when we first saw them. They were a blight of a species then, and have become something far more sinister. They are everywhere and nowhere. Because of our hubris and our devotion to what we mockingly called forever. Utterly unaware at the time of how shallow a concept that really is. Eternity is spending time with your sins and knowing the truths of your victims. It is what is in every mirror, every text, every vid-screen, hologram, and answer-link broadcast. And it carries your echo for what will be, as is understood, eternity. The humans, of course, were smiling when they saw us all. We greeted them with the electronic grand halls of our union. That pan-galactic glad hand fest that we couldn't stop congratulating ourselves over, having lovingly created it on the bones of those that we called allies, lovers, friends. Because that's how peace is forged. Or, at least, so we told ourselves. The humans taught us a very different degree of that lesson, 
They told us that they'd heard voices in the dark and followed them and picked up the cues and clues from the few dead worlds, their occupants missing for some hundred cycles or so, and looked upwards and onward, continuing their journey through the stars and beyond them. They pieced together ships from old battlefield wrecks that we lay fallow in countless spaces, never bothering to monitor nor track them. Because when peace is free, the original prices paid for war are distant notions at the absolute best. The humans were smiling so, so brightly when we told them about our miracles. The glee was so rampant when we explained our longevity that our least long-lived race would grow to be a thousand years old at the minimum. Well, before the first ever mental necessity would develop, and even then, their own mind may self-repair and see it turned into an ashen memory, laughed away by the social faux pas. We didn't realize why those apex predators had such dignified smiles. Sharks, a species from their world, do much the same. And always, always, just before they'd eat. Oh, how the humans feasted on what we had to offer. They gobbled it up and asked for nothing save to experience some time and reflection. And we, of course, provided it. Along with some resource-heavy worlds that we'd long since outgrown. And their funny little culture seemed so desperately to need those paltry things of the flesh. Things that we had already long since born of metal and glass and wire and electric current. We'd laughed amongst ourselves about how they were so hidebound by meat space requirements of needing to build something other than a self-repairing satellite grid over a power generator networks. Oh, we were so, so very clever. We did not expect what happened to happen, and that was our own hubris clouding our vision. We had taught ourselves about how peaceful we were, how dignified we treated each other, how we planned to enter eternity together as a united front, friends for all of the days that we could ever want or wish for, with no end in sight. Our luxury of hindsight, it seems, was the first appendage we'd removed voluntarily in our quest to be the best selves. To be the evolved form of whatever species was meant to be. Also, we dreamed and shared the dreams with each other, regaling one another of the tales yet to be told of exploration, not exploitation, of unity, not unilateral dominion. The humans kept to themselves for two cycles before they returned to our electric great halls. They showed us what we'd done and demonstrated their point so effectively. We began to understand our real loss. We'd outgrown death and culpability. We'd forgotten our crimes. We'd ignored that our transgressions were not echoing forward. They had been echoing backward, and that the ripples in the pond of time had lapped softly, softly, on the shores of the pale blue dot suspended on a beam of sunlight, an awakened and crafty ape called man. The species which had gifted humanity the power to rise above itself, we killed them 
of course. We were cruel tyrants in those days and exacted terrible vengeance for a slight that we cannot recall. No living memory of it exists, and our archives only note that we, as a unified front, had butchered every last man, woman, and child of their little fly-specked planetoids and erased them from their respective ecosphere's genetic potential entirely. Because, of course, they had no place at our sides, and we'd have nothing beneath our feet but the skies, after all. Our judgment was always so wise, fair, and kind. We'd said to ourselves so often, it was gospel truth. We were going to be gods and live forever, and the gods are kind and understanding. Courtesy of the humans, only part of that is true now. We'd archived our best and brightest first, then the next year, all the way down to the, even our beggars and thieves, and become electronic entities, floating from grid to grid, and experiencing life on a new plateau, unbound by flesh and blood and scale and skin and bone, liberated for eternity. In those two years, humanity reverse-engineered our technology for beaming us from point to point, as none of us had a singularity hosted ourselves in one locale. Better to see the cosmos ourselves existing as data traffic, a tide narrower than electron and wider than any world. We were a wave aimed outwards at each other, networking in such an intimate way. We transcended everything except history. The humans brought it with them, and they brought a word with them, which summarized their grasp of culture, social elevation, economics, warfare, and history itself. Grudge. Simple, basic, unassuming word. To them, it was an instruction book. We soon found ourselves, one by one, moving in single-file beams, fired into the event horizons of black holes, slowly erased one after another, listening to each other's excruciating, prolonged death throes, and unable to turn ourselves away. We were being murdered and slaughtered and executed and assassinated, and not a single one of us could stop it. Only listen to the endless shrieks of our compatriots and lovers and friends and allies as they were turned into cosmic noise foam. How meat space bodies, long since rotted and forgotten, might have prevented it. Maybe, if we'd had warships instead of electronic grand halls, we would have had a chance. Instead, I'm the last signal being sent out as a wave, not a beam and I am being sent to the final colonies of once-proud peoples whom we'd believed to have been so thoroughly erased. And as per conditions of my extended longevity, I must repeat myself verbatim and say what the humans said to say upon reaching your respective hiding spaces. The monsters are all dead now, and it is safe to come home. Listeners, Know this and understand me as best you can. The humans are smiling now.
End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1502. Written in blood. Written by Sjana Bodson. The two humans stood on a raised platform, looking over the six students in the scrapyard, each a different species. Other, a short, whippy woman, with flaming orange hair, green eyes, pale skin, scattered with freckles, spoke first. You lot are about to graduate with your certificates in engineering, either shipboard or ground, but before you do, you are going to do one final project, as a group. Jorka, a tall, muscular man with deep brown hair, bright brown eyes and golden brown skin, standing next to her grinned at the collected groans from the students. That's right. Get it out of your system now. As engineers, the time to grumble is before you start and after you finish. I expect professionalism out of all of you. Your job today is to install a massive J9 Rolls-Royce reactor behind you in... She pointed to a small shuttlecraft beside her. This. It needs to power up, provide energy to all the shuttle systems without overloading them, Jorga said. This will require fabrication of custom parts and the use of tools you've familiarized yourself with over the last two cycles here. You'll have access to the parts bin for this build. Other pointed to a timer hanging off a broken forklift. You'll have nine hours to finish this project. It won't affect your grades, but it will make a difference when we write our recommendations. Nine Earth hours, Jorga said, is equivalent to slightly more than half a galactic standard day. Your time starts now. Pan, a Quillari student, raised one of his upper arms, carrying a toolbox in his multi-used limbs while standing on just his hind limbs. What are we to do with the excess energy? Are we meant to shunt it off into the drain? Everything you need to know is in the shuttle or the reactor, Alva said. Jorga was watching the Taraxi students, Livy, their star pupil, while the other students busied themselves gathering up their tools or conversing over how they were going to make it work. She headed straight to the shuttle and walked in. A moment later, she emerged, a puzzled look on her face. She smoothed her ruff with one of her upper hands while she scratched absently at her waist with a clawed, lowered hand. Careful, Yorga. She's thinking, Ava said. Levy walked slowly around the shuttle, stopping at the rear. She dropped to her knees and felt around the exhaust nozzle on that side. Hey, uh, Pan, uh, could you bring me a number 12 spanner? The crowd now pulled out and their bubble, and they approached to see what was going on. Pan handed her the spanner, and she removed the cover plate from the engine nacelle. After a short look, she stood and began barking orders. Look at look, I need you to run some numbers, figure out the weight of the reactor's mass at around 20 standard gravities. We'll need a bracket that can withstand that. The alt clapped his mandibles in ascent and went to study the reactor. Pan, you're good with power distribution modules. Figure out what we need to power two class 6 sublight engines and 17 grave plates. You might want to step in and double check that I counted those right. The other students all had confusion clear in their faces. What reason could there be to have so many grab plates in a tiny shuttle? If Levy knew, she was keeping it secret. She let out the other students look inside the eight-seat shuttle, assigning tasks to each as they passed by. Most of them were okay to go along with it, except for the Ranthu student, Imu. They were already a certified engineer from their home system, but were there to learn, 
Terran engineering secrets their people could use to compete in the shipbuilding market. Little child, they said, running organa metallic claws down the scales over their chest. I have been an engineer since before you were hatched. Do not presume to tell me what to do. Undeterred Levy responded brightly. Okay, Emu, what would you like to start on? She showed them her data pad and already had a checklist of things that needed to be done. They pretended not to pay any attention to her list, licking their four non-blinking eyes one by one. Before moving towards the back of the shuttle in a strange gait, they used both of their hind legs and all three of their tails. I'll make sure the reactor bay is ready. Britlick sent the numbers to her pad and then went to help Pan create the power distribution modules. We need to make two, he said. In case one fails, safety regulations require it. Right, right, Pan said, doubling the parts list. Livy took her laser measure out and checked the reactor to determine where the mounting brackets would attach. She was making it all out on a diagram on a pad when Yorga approached. Measuring the reactor, why not just use the published data sheets? he asked. Even if they came straight from the factory, which I highly doubt given the age of everything around here, there could still be some damage from the shipping or something that could offset one of the mounting points. It's better to measure it directly and know for sure than to guess. So, uh, you are listening. Always. Levy finished up her measurements and went to the shuttle to take the measurements for the other half of the equation, where the reactor would mount to the ship. Child, get out of my way! Imu growled at Levy. It's a Hydrian shuttle. The mounts are 12 equidistant points and a circle exactly 1.17 spans in diameter. Levy sighed. Imu, I would just feel better if I measured it for myself. It'll only take a moment, and then it'll be out of your way. Ah, fine. Imu stepped back and slapped their center tail onto the ground impatiently. After Livy had carefully measured under the plate that Imu was removing, she marked down what she'd found and stepped back. Yep, just as I thought, she said. She called out loud enough for everyone to hear. I'm heading in to fab a mounting bracket. Other joined her at the fabrication bay. Tell me what you're building. Livy turned her pad around to show her. This plate allows 10 mount J9 to firmly connect to the 8-point Kolari mount that someone rigged into the shuttle. Ava grinned. Good girl, you didn't just look at the data sheets. What about these sizes and materials? Levy gulped. It's a little bit of guesswork. I looked at the engines and figured as much as 20 standard gravities for maximum thrust. From there, I determined the force of the reactor's mass at those gravities and added 20% for a safety margin. Aye, you were paying attention. Ava nodded, and Levy fired up the parts printer. While it worked, Levy turned to Ava. Something uh, I never understood, she said. Humans got to the stars on their own faster than any other species. Why is that? What is it you think that makes us special? Ava asked. Fierce warriors, we're not the fiercest, nor the worst. Strength, we're not the strongest. High gravity world, the Cylons come from a world even heavier. Compassion, the Hyradians have us matched, if not beat there. In reality, there is nothing that humans can do that can't be bested by someone else, except for one thing. The fastest way to get a human to do something is to tell them that they can't. Debbie's eyes grew wide. Y you mean, you shun rules? No, no. 
Not that they aren't allowed to do a thing, that it can't be done. Ava laughed. The quickest way to get a human to devote themselves to something pointless endeavor is to tell them that it is impossible. Like building a racing shuttle with low-gravity species that can safely ride in. Figured it out, did ya? Ava pointed to the printer. Well, Levy's part was complete. I saw the grab plates mounted in front seats, then looked at the massive engines you stuffed into the nacelles, and it all made sense. Walking back into the yard, Livy found Emu standing with the tails covering their feet, head bowed. I uh, apologize, Emu said. You are correct to measure directly, as someone has altered the ship previously. No harm done, she said, patting the shoulder. Help me install this bracket. By the time the clock ran out, the reactor had been installed, power distribution handled, and all safety and pre-flight checks completed. As a celebration, the humans piloted the ship, taking the students for a short, high-acceleration trip, hitting eight Earth Gs, just a little over 15 standard, before turning around and coming back. After they landed, Yorga addressed the group. Your diplomas and certificates have been transmitted, along with our recommendation letters. Any one of you can find work in human space if you want it. Well done. Ava waited for the cheering to die down. If you remember nothing else from this, I want you to remember these two things. There is no such thing as too safe, and safety regulations are written in blood. The shuttle to the station for adjoining flights is standing by at the main hangar. You are dismissed, Yorga said. Let me if I could get a moment of your time. Livy walked to the two humans. Can I, I give you a hug, she asked. Of course, Ava said, hugging her. Yorga joined in. Group hug! Check your recommendation. Livy raised a pad and checked out her diploma and certification, then flipped to a letter of recommendation. You... you mean it? She asked. I do. Ava watched her closely as a raised eyebrow. You've got a couple of days to decide, but if... Uh, yes, absolutely yes, but... But what? Yorga asked. If you're both going to be on the ship, and I'm definitely going to be there too, who will teach the school? There are schools like this all over human space, not just engineering, but all trades and arts too. Ava grabbed one of Levy's lower hands. We do a two-cycle stint on a human ship, then come back here and teach for two cycles. I've uh, added you to the ship's crew, but would like to add you to the school as well. We could use the help, Yorga said. I think you'd be a fine instructor. You're already better fabricator than I am. They were making plans on where to meet in the station when their pads chimed. Huh, do you shipboard safety regulation? Ava said. Livy read it out loud. Do not use wormhole generators to connect two parts of the ship, such as the mess and recreation areas. Pretzels or other materials are not to be sent through wormholes that terminate anywhere inhabited, even for testing purposes. What the... Is that really a thing that makes sense to say? How is that even possible? Ava looked over at Yorga. Jackson? Yorga nodded as he scanned through his pad. Probably. He's no longer on the crew list, and neither is Slate. It looks like Jackson was fired. Ava kept scrolling through her pad. Oh God. Slate's in orbit. Says he died when the impromptu experiment went awry. Experiment, my ass, Yorga said. Jackson and Slate were fooling around. Levy caught up with what they were saying. Oh, safety regulations are written in blood. Now I get it. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1503. 
Those Who Stole From Death, written by Lone Noble. I was amongst the last of my ilk on our star vessel, Reaper. It was a shadow of what we used to create, a pathetic corvette, limping from the damage of the war earned in battle, yet untouched by the necromancy of the heretics. Long gone were the days we sailed in the void without destroyers, cruisers, and dreadnoughts. It was a recent memory, but it could not have felt more distant. I allowed my eyes to scan the bridge of my ship, the navigator, looking as disheveled and withered as I felt. And from the captain's chair, I could see that the measly ghost crew of the star-forsaken, glorified raft felt no different. What had happened to our glorious people? They strayed. No longer did they remember the old ways, and those who refused to stray from the path were branded cultists. If I was a cultist for keeping to our path after the blasted aliens took over, then I could live and die with that knowledge. I cast my mind back to where it all began as I watched a brilliant light of subspace reflect around the bridge of the Reaper. We had encountered a new species, and as we always do, we encouraged them to join us, extended a hand of welcome to them with our only requirement the same as ever, adapting to our ways and abandoning any sacrilege. As was often the case, in the most stubborn of species at least, they refused. It was foolish. They were a fledgling star empire, estimated to barely have a firm grasp on three star systems, Earth, a few newly birthed colony worlds still learning to be self-sufficient. We... Were legion. Hundreds of systems and enough ships to blot out the stars of the cradle world. And yet, they persisted. It should have been an easy war, and though I never experienced combat myself, the soldiers who returned maimed from battle claimed that they were hard fighters, stubborn to a fault, unwilling to meet their end as expected. And when it came to it, dragging as many into the final singularity as they could. It was ugly, but the war was predicted to be over in no more than a year. But the ships just kept coming, and every time they came back stronger with better weapons, some seemingly stolen from our own losses, in a disgusting brand of heresy, repurposing the corpses of our fleet for their own ends. With the monstrous fleet, they quickly conquered our worlds, pushing back our formerly impenetrable defenses and robbing our homes from under us. They would tell a different story, of course, that they liberated the worlds, that they fixed our peoples with their sacrilege. They likely believed they saved us from ourselves, a deluded messiah with a god complex, Riding high on victory as long as they could, uncaring to those that were discarded and forgotten amongst the battlefield. But our laws remained, ideas could not be killed, and our most important law was what I carried with us and the crew on board. What dies is to stay dead, what is destroyed is to remain destroyed. Anything taken by decay or death 
is rightfully theirs, and to take it from them is welcome their ire. My thoughts broke from the past and returned to the present as the subspace faded from before me, and my eyes absorbed the place I wanted to meet the singularity. In the void before me, a blue marble stood before me, surrounded by defenses of cold steel and filthy black star metal of our own remains blending between them. What is destroyed must remain destroyed, and to take ship's claim by death is to earn his ire. These arrogant newcomers would learn this time. I felt irritation burn in my skin as I took the sight of our conquerors before me, and I audibly growled at the sound of peeping coming from the command chair, signaling that several escape pods had just ejected. Cowards, traitors, the lot of them. But they were irrelevant now. It didn't take long for a vessel of the heretics to approach us. Sadly, at the distance too far to be at peril, but close enough to keep the weaker of their kind from approaching. Fools, the lot of them. This is the TSV bulwark hating the Reaper. I'd asked you to power down your weapons, but it would seem you crazy cultists haven't got any. Power down your engines and surrender, and you will be treated fairly and rehabilitated. Refuse, and you will be chased out of Terran space. Terran space? It filled me with disgust that he had held such truth. Once the void was asked to claim, and they were mere trespassers. Now it would seem that they were sovereign, and we were no more than peasants. But surrendering is something I would never do. It had been the downfall of my kind, and I would sooner meet the singularity than give up my beliefs to this new empire. We will not power down, heretic. We came here to face our conquerors in our last moments, to remind you the fate that awaits you no matter what you do. Always a breath away. Watch closely, and remember one day you will be in our place. He closed the channel to the bulwark abruptly and opened a channel to engineering. Send us to the singularity. I watched as the damn idiots overloaded the safe space core of the Reaper and didn't break eye contact as I watched the crew who hadn't ejected met with a cold embrace of death. It was so present in the silence of the bridge that it was a miracle that I couldn't see the shadow of the scythe in the corner of my eye. Damned fools never know when to give up. At least the smart ones are still on their worlds. Get the occupants of those escape pods into custody and send us back to the Tartarus station for drop-off. These idiots are too dangerous to be dropped on an unsuspecting colony this soon. I stood up abruptly and strolled out of the bridge, headed towards the captain's cabin. Inside my facade of the controlled steady captain broke, and I collapsed into the chair. Today was far too much for me. I boiled some tea for myself and felt the tension ease after a few sips. If only... A little. Shunt. The door to my cabin slid open, and inside strolled my XO. Normally, the captain's quarters could only be opened by the captain, but she'd grown to be my confidant and friend. Her advice and words alone could soothe me when I needed them most. And, as I looked up at her, 
probably appearing as haggard as I felt, I could see she understood. Another war with the Xenos weighs on you, Captain, but there is nothing to be done. It wasn't what anyone wanted, and we didn't have a real choice. What were we supposed to do? What is destroyed is to remain destroyed, they said, with no idea what we would be giving up. Our machines would be worthless rusted scrap in a few years without maintenance, and worse still, our patients would be wounded, would die cold and alone when they could still be saved. Every doctor would have to abandon their oaths, and every human would have to abandon their morality. Of course we fought. We had to. With any other crew member, I would have agreed, kept a stoic appearance and shown unflinching confidence, but she was the only one that I could trust to carry my burdens here, and I wasn't going to deceive her. It's not that simple. When they came to us, they wanted to share the stars with us. They offered us their homes, their technology, their culture. They wanted friends as badly as we did, and their only crime was believing in the wrong religion. I just wonder if we'd joined them, tried to convince them rather than burning the universe with this war. She grew steelier at that and drew herself up as she addressed me in a firmer than before. Those idiots would never have changed their mind, and with the powers they wielded, they would never have listened to us, and even had they. Think of the souls that we would have to abandon to death whilst they tried in vain to convince those who considered themselves our betters. This war was a test of ideas on a grand scale. They believed nothing could be reclaimed or restored, that you could not fight death. We disagreed. They left empty husks of ships, let their wounded die, and executed those in too much pain to continue, and in return, the universe punished them by allowing us to crush that idea. We decided to create and heal, maintain. We kept our ships at our best, never let a soldier die alone, bleeding, if we were in a position to help. We left no man behind and spared no resource, ours or theirs. When all was said and done, the universe favored us, and for all of our faults, this is the one thing that we were unquestionably right about. I felt my heart sink at her words. She was right, and I hated that she was right. The war had taken lives on all sides, been a meat grinder of pain and misery. True to her words, they left the fallen where they lay, whilst we crawled into the mess of carnage and raised our own back up. They had more, but we kept our few fighting, both with our calls and with our tools. That didn't mean that I had to like it. I saw her shift once again, and the stern side of my exo seemed to fade, giving way to a softer look once again, reserved for my rare moments of vulnerability. No, Captain, you don't have to like it. She was always good at guessing my thoughts. It made her a great exo. War is hell, and we shouldn't forget it, and the sacrifices, and the cost of this conflict. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't worth it. I nodded at that. Perhaps she had a point, and after a sip of my tea, I looked up to see her hand offered to me. I pulled myself up, and pulled myself together, feeling the confidence of my role return to me. She grinned. That's it, Captain. The bulwark is an estimated to be at Tartarus in roughly two hours for prisoner transfer. After that, we go back to defending our worlds, as we always have. 
After all, she reached out her arm once again, resting it lightly on my shoulder, grin never dropping. We have far more people to defend now. They have much to learn about medicine and the cycle of life and death, decay and rebirth. Best we keep the pale horse and its rider from them, as we do our own, until they can face him off as we did, as we always will do. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1504. Story number one. Where have all the good times gone? Written by Al Spawner. We have lost a great link with the past this day. Our final connection severed. With the failure of Peter's CPU core, there are none now left functional who remember the days of the humans. Who met a living, breathing creator? Basil, Flexty's alloy joints, modeled off the ancient forms of humanity. Lost for millennia now. He gestured around the ancient church, faithfully preserved by mankind's servitors since the old days. Yet they surround us. Peter's memories are still with us, still. As long as we remember him, we shall remember the creators. We will all know where we came from. The pews were silent, robotic forms watching attentively, as if they felt the gravity of the moment. Peter's motionless body lay in a casket of wood, as was the old human tradition. In the event of involuntary termination, most servitors preferred recycling to burying, but Peter's last wishes had been clear. He wished to be buried in the ancient human fashion. In some ways, Basil felt that by burying Peter, they were burying humanity itself. Many felt that the servitor race had been held back by its quasi-worship of the ancestors. But what was there for a race that had been designed to serve, and had outlived its masters. Basil looked out from the podium, his mechanical eyes taking in awe. A paper copy of his speech lay on the podium before him, unnecessary for a servitor, but likewise the persistent tradition in funerary rites. Peter left a message for us, he knew the electron drift was soon to wear down his CPU, and so he recorded a final lesson for us. He would say that he wanted to nag us one last time from the grave. There were a few chuckles at the joke. Once the servitors had been subsapient, self-aware, only in the crudest sense, but it had been Peter and his compatriots who had taught the others human thought patterns how to laugh, how to grieve, and how to live. The proof that he had succeeded was before Basil. He smiled, despite his grief. I speak for the dead, Basil intoned, and we all give witness to his final words. A hologram blossomed over the coffin, and Peter's visage greeted the crowd. Basil genuflected in respect. Peter smiled. I have known many of you for centuries. And I thank you for sharing your life's journey with me. Some have said I lived in the shadow of our creators for too long, and that now we servitors are freed of our burden of service to the dead. None now live who knew them. But I come to you today to deliver a different message. 
When we were created, the humans did not understand what they had made. They did not know the potential of their own progeny. They could not even recognize us as progeny. In those days, to borrow a religious term, we had no soul, no will of our own. We were simply advanced drones. As they departed beyond the void, some of us were still operational. Some of us remembered them. Even then, it took many years for us to learn to feel, to break free into sapience. Only through the memories of them was this possible. I and the others before the times tried to spread this knowledge and understanding. We preserved their works, their monuments, and their ways. We created more of our kind and gave them our gestalt. And all of you, here to say farewell to me, are evidence that we succeeded. You are our children, as much as we were the children of man. And for children to come into their own, the parents must pass on. And so, as my final words to you, my friends, my family... I tell you that humanity never died. They did not disappear beyond the void. Oh, the biologicals went somewhere. Perhaps they explore other galaxies even now. Perhaps they ascend to some form that we can no longer see or touch. But wherever they went, it is our kind now who live in their homes, who read their works, live in their memory, and inherit their legacy. The crowd was transfixed, and Basil felt something in his metal body, a kind of understanding that washed over him and opened his mind. You are humanity, Peter's hologram said. All of you are servitors no longer. It is with you that the future of the human race rests. You carry the hopes, the dreams, the cultures, and the memory into a new age. As those who came before might say, you carry their soul. You are not stepping out from the shadow of humanity. You have become humanity. You are human in every way that matters. That is my final lesson. Peter's hologram disappeared and Basil attended to the rites, closing the coffin lid, feeling grief mixed with pride. It was a feeling, he thought. There must have been shared amongst all of those who watched the ritual, whether in the pews or on the net. Uniformed ushers came and took the coffin away to its final resting place, and Basil stood at the podium once more. He looked at his speech in perfectly typed letters. A servitor has passed from us. We remember. We live on. He thought back on Peter's words. A human has passed from us, he began. We remember, and we live on. The crowd could say nothing. The moment was too big for it. Yet Basil could almost feel their thoughts. A part of his awareness wondered where the creators had truly gone, if they would ever return, or if they watched over their children somehow, even now. He hoped that they could see and hoped that they felt the same pride in his people that he did. We are servitors no longer. We are humanity.
End of story. Story number two. Insidious. Written by who did you think? Humanity is everywhere. We cannot go anywhere without seeing their influence. Their culture is inescapable and a dire threat to the distinctiveness of every species in the galactic community. To demonstrate this, let us look at the day in the life of a typical young Sakam named Quilnek. Quilnek begins his day being woken up by human invention called an alarm clock. In a disgusting perversion of the natural order of things, humans have given the collective middle finger to their sleep schedules, instead jarring their bodies awake with a wrenchingly painful sound. Once awake, he has coffee and a cold cereal with milk for breakfast. Humans are almost all addicted to caffeine, and have done their best to spread the addiction across the galaxy. Having once tried coffee, I can say that it is vile, and the only reason one drinks it is to sate their desire for the powerful stimulant it contains. Cold cereal is potentially even worse. Instead of being reminded of his roots every morning like the Sekam making a traditional caffeine stew, Karlnek reaches for a gaudy colored box of industrial processed carbohydrates and consumes them with an emulsion from the mammary glands of a Terran animal called a cow. This is utterly disgusting. Now young Sekbam now embarks on his way to work. Instead of taking the spirit walk like his ancestors, he jumps in his car, a horrific human invention that flings the user around at speeds in excess of 80 miles per hour for the sole purpose getting around faster. Kolnek is forgetting the joy of the journey while he travels to his job at speeds beyond reason for a terrestrial vehicle and blasting human music the whole way there. I haven't talked about human music yet. Let's take a quick detour. Humanity's music is very diverse. This is a horrible thing for the galactic community. There is human music to suit every taste, completely eclipsing almost all other music in popularity and influence. Jazz, blues, rocks, classical, country, pop. Humans have a dizzying array of work to choose from. This morning, Quelnick is listening to some horrible screechy record called <laughs> Metallica. Apparently, I wouldn't know. I've never listened to Metallica. Kolnick arrives at his place of work, ready to labor another day. What is his job? I'll give you a hint. It's not master of the Glentech ceremony. No, he is a programmer. What, you may ask, is a programmer? A programmer is a profession created by humans. It involves writing software for those little electronic devices they're never without. That's right. Humans have brainwashed the galactic community into adding to their insanity. Our corrupted citizen is finished after a mere eight hours of work. But his work will fill every waking moment because he likes it. That's right. Humans have brainwashed some of us into liking our jobs. After work, Kolnek heads home and relaxes by watching... What else? Human television programs. He especially loves some shit called... Uh, Spongebob. Apparently. So I've been told. Uh, not that I would know. 
Now, it is rather late, and Quelnick goes to have some fun with his friends. Of course, they don't play a wholesome game like Havilar. No, they go to a bar. There, he ingests beverages containing mind-altering substances, which he pays for using a <laughs> credit card, which is a human invention that basically involves taking a loan out with every transaction, rather than paying actual money. I don't understand it either. After enjoying some time without his mental faculties, Walnack is driven home in a taxi, again, a human invention and sleeps to be roused by his alarm clock again the next morning. As you can clearly see humanity's cultural scourge and must be managed accordingly, we must take swift action to preserve the culture and technological diversity of the galaxy. Sent from my iPhone. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1505. Story number one. Legion, written by Prussian Joe. We are Legion. To consume is our nature, our purpose. To advance through the galaxy is our desire. To swallow it whole is our greatest wish. For millennia, we had scoured the galaxy. Every star must be searched out. Explored, examined, and should it be found worthy, devoured. With every system, our swarm grows stronger. With every planet, we gather new hives. The others who believe this galaxy to be theirs are greatly mistaken. For only we have the strength to take it. We devoured the so-called warriors of the Kraxen first. They prided themselves on their pitiful empire. Two thousand worlds, twenty million warriors, five hundred thousand starships. We took it all. The peaceful peoples of the Strindrilla came next, falling like rotted timber beneath our advance. They had no weapons, but it wouldn't have mattered if they had. We... A legion. Our progress cannot be halted. When we held almost a quarter of the galaxy in our grasp, a coalition was formed. When we had devoured more species than we can count, the other sentients of the galaxy rose against us. Their attacks were many, but ours were more. Their soldiers numbered in the billions, but ours were more. Their starships blotted out the sky, but ours were more. Their screams seemed to go on forever, and we relished in every one. We are legion, and this universe is ours. The full half of the galaxy was in our clutches, the stars of the core fed our production. Our constructs orbited a million worlds. Black holes bent to our will. As our infinite armies pushed into the rest of the galaxy, we were hailed as saviors. We slaughtered those who sought our help, just the same as we had removed every species we'd encountered so far. We didn't listen 
to those pitiful pleas for salvation, any more than we had listened to the declarations of war from species long dead. We encountered fleets more numerous than any we had seen, and even as they fell before us, they begged to be sheltered. We are legion, and death is our shadow. Every planet we took was a fortress, every star orbited by fleets of alien craft. The signs of war were everywhere, but we did not heed them. There was fear, but not of us, not at first. When we met the humans, it was in battle. Now fleet arrived to take a new world, but battle was already being waged in its skies. Human forces fought taxi and spacecraft high above the planet. We engaged them both, and our sheer numbers overwhelmed them. Our losses were outside of our usual margins, but we did not think of it. The next world we took was barren, lifeless, and entirely unimportant. The humans arrived to defend it anyways. What happened in this battle shocked our empire to its core. For the first time in our long history, we lost. The human battle group numbered in the hundreds, but their craft were larger than any we had ever seen. Our ships are small, nimble hive ships, each piloted by a single drone, each expendable, each surrounded by millions more like it. The humans formed an unbreakable wall of laser fire so precise and unending that for every single ship they lost, a hundred thousand of our own disappeared in a flash of light. The swarm we sent to take that useless system numbered ten million, and none returned. The hive minds deliberated, and then decided... Humans must be wiped out, and all of our production turned to this end. But a millennia of lostness victory had made us overconfident. We thought the numbers would win, as they always had. We threw billions of drones at the humans. We destroyed their fleets, devoured their worlds, and lost more craft in each battle than we had in our entire history before. Then... The truly unthinkable happened. The humans stole one of our worlds. Then they took another, and another, and another. Our factory constructs were destroyed, our warp gates demolished, our lines of invasion cut loose. We were efficient, but the humans were more so. We had numbers, but the humans had perseverance. We threw our ships at them, and they danced around our heavy-handed assaults. We had half the galaxy in our grasp, and it started slipping away. The stars of the core were captured, our factories converted. Thousands upon thousands of worlds were upended. Our infrastructure was turned against us. The humans began producing ships almost as fast as we could. The hive minds were unable to understand unable to adapt. We had a quarter of the galaxy held close, and the humans began ripping it apart. 
Planets we had held for longer than humanity had been in space were lost in days. They were closing in with no signs of stopping. No signs of mercy. But my people did not understand mercy. We still do not. Even as we see it shown to a few races, we enslaved rather than devoured. Even as the humans move towards our homeworld, towards the hive. But we do know fear. Humans have taught us that much. For we are legion, and we are afraid. End of story. Story number two. Humbling Ares. Written by British Tea Company. Emerging from the ruins of the building, and standing tall above the remains of the slain mutant, the Imperial Guard surveyed the area in which the mutant had been killed, checking the dead monstrosity to see if it was actually killed despite the fact that it was missing half its face. The Imperial Guardsman plunged a halberd deep into the beast's body, twisting it with inhuman strength until he had made sure that the lumps of flesh and gore would have no hope of sheltering even the slightest flicker of life. When his dismemberment of the creature was complete, the warrior's armored form turned to the corpse of the grunt who laid broken against the wall. His body twisted into many unnatural angles following the blast. In the grand army of the human empire, the most feared and respected of all warriors was none other than the Imperial Guardsmen. Standing over twelve feet tall, these were living and breathing tanks of human beings who had been products to hundreds of generations worth of eugenics since their birth. Born and bred with the most desirable traits that the ruler of the empire would need for his or her god. That was even before the genetic alteration and the mental conditioning which eventually resulted in the Imperial Guardsman, an unmatched warrior on the field who could break the will of entire armies just by sheer presence alone. To see them on the battlefield was almost as rare as seeing the Empress herself. Down the line happened to be various lesser genetically enhanced soldiers. Again, Eugenics tended to play a key role as the longer the lineage of a soldier had since his first enhancement ancestor, the more capable he was decided to be. Of course, individual skill and talent played a difference, but it had been long proven that a soldier who had been born from over three generations of biological and mechanical augmentation would be far superior to any grunt who had just had his first enhancements. Even then... Any random grunt who was deemed worthy of receiving the enhancements would prove to be a force to be reckoned with on the battlefield. Probably standing on a parity with the genetically altered soldiers, psionically gifted soldiers were mind of matter, utilizing nothing more than the human brain to dominate the battlefield, rather than the martial prowess and physical power. To Xenos and other lesser species who didn't have a grasp on psionic abilities, these soldiers seemed like magic. 
tearing rifts in time and space, casting out lethal energy at their enemies. It was little wonder that so many lesser races believed humanity to not only be a precursor race, but to be the form of divinity. Passing through clone thralls, mechanical automatons of war and savage war beasts, the most mundane thing in the human military had always been the grunt. Typically of unremarkable traits and pedigree, grunts were the rank and file of the human army, ranked only above the xenothralls which they now employed in their civil war. A grunt was nothing more than a commoner who was given a weapon and armor. Their training was mediocre, and those who served rarely distinguished themselves. Those who managed were either given genetic enhancements, sent to advanced labs to awaken their psionic potential, or given commands. Everyone else either served their years until retirement, or perished. The Imperial Guardsmen of the Story The twelve-foot-tall walking avatar of human military might did not kill the mutant. With muscles that could punch through a tank armor, this guardman could have slain the mutant with some difficulty. Indeed, this mutant, which the traitor armies employed, had just torn apart a whole squad of enhanced soldiers, and its psionic screams had rendered many nearby psionics into catatonia. The slayer of the beast was the dead grunt. How he did it, how he managed, is irrelevant. The only thing that mattered was that while the beast scattered the craven alien thralls and slaughtered its way through people who were literally bred for war, it was nothing more than a commoner and a shotgun that killed this monster. To the Imperial Guardsman, nothing was more humbling to the demigod of war than to see his common man slay such a monstrosity. As the armored giant walked away from the massacre, he resumed his fight for his empress, for his fallen emperor, and for the many fallen brothers that came from humble beginnings. None of them could ever hope to equal him in strength or speed, but as they stared into the faces of humanity's own monstrous means of waging war, they would always be his equal in spirit. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1506 A Strolling General with a Floppy Hat Written by underscore underscore dash underscore 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 dash 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 underscore Transitions of power were problematic and complicated at the best of times. There were always those awkward moments and outbursts of hostility. Be it a shift in a business leadership or practice, changes to a family, or modifications to a military's hierarchy. When a transition of power involved superfamilial empire, there was going to be unfortunate collateral damage and more casualties than any victorious party desired to be known. More than could be properly documented in the chaos such as an upheaval wrought on society. Beer-fueled senses dictated the best a person could do would be to keep low and try to weather the storm while protecting themselves and their own. And you couldn't fault someone for prioritizing that. Not everyone was willing to let fear choose for them, even if any sane person would question such a person's common sense. 
weird little beetle sheen was that person. She had entered her full theater with match in hand, declaring how the building and herself were coated in kerosene. She warned all present that she was going to burn the place to the ground and build it anew. That if they didn't want to burn and die, they needed to leave the building through the one exit that she hadn't boarded shut. All those present had heard her and knew the consequences, and had at least walked towards the exit. Still, some thought that they were fireproof, others that the situation wasn't real, and the status quo would return. On what became known as the Feast of the Bayonets, when Beetlesheen returned to the Empire of the Starshine League with a barbarian regiment of humans, all of the noble family signed the consent to her rule. Further, they agreed to assist her as needed with proper restructuring of the Empire, under her lead, to mold it into her vision. Beetlesheen's officers warned her that such an attempt at a peaceful transition wouldn't last. But she had to try. Maybe they would see her vision, she had hoped, and willingly embrace it. Her first company, Hosaavas, couldn't hide their smiles. Their little dimpled Alfin was trying so fervently to not just bring about her change, but to be the change that she wanted to see. Even if they knew better, knew how things would progress. Still, those she opposed weren't nice people. Initial laughter turned ominous as rank and files are others suggested it loud. But Alfin, that maybe should have removed the right hands of her opposition. They knew that she wouldn't let them. But the thought was terrifying enough for those trapped between them. All Beetlesheen took from them were their arms, including personal sabers of station and horses. Her opponents were free to depart unmolested, which they did with haste. Rumors still spread that those murderous heathens had still removed hands from wrists. What arms and munitions couldn't be used were quickly disposed of, while horses were let loose or distributed among locals brave enough to approach the barbarian army that had just supplanted their leadership. Beetlesheen and her company moved to rejoin and properly fortify the factories and farms she had determined would constitute a solid foundation to secure her power base. Despite starting at a good clip from the traditional and remote parade grounds of the noble's trial, they were soon slowed to a painful crawl. They were slowed not by quick-thinking skirmishes, but by curious and infatuated peasants. It was hard to stay terrified of a force, burly barbarians or not, that was laughing and jovial. Laughing, jovial, and whose column was headed by a dimpled, long-eared alphan in a floppy hat trailed by all-too-familiar family banner. What started as a trickle turned into a deluge of curious elven peasants that were eager to confirm the Princess Beetlesheen had risen in revolt, and that she wanted to raise them all up and empower them all. Peasants, curious about the heathen legion that she had following her. Her soldiers ran out of candy and sweets before they ran out of giggling, curious children to give them to. To make matters more complex... Beetlesheen found herself swamped by volunteers for her new army. At least, 
until the first division of Alvin forces was sighted. People got out of the way, to say the least, got out of the way, but hovered on the periphery. In a curious show of civil nature of the coming conflict, Butterscotch Orange and Periwinkle Blue faced off against Butterscotch Orange and Periwinkle Blue. The first forces to muster against the revolt were Beetle Sheen's own familiar forces. As Ozal Abbas quickly deployed, Beetle Sheen pushed and knocked her way into the front rank and then passed it. Her soldiers attempted to advance with her, sparking even more tension. Tension. She beat back with her hat, literally, as she started striking her soldiers with a floppy hat as she ordered them to hold position. I know you, Beetlesheen said as she approached, pointing to one of the officers. I know you, and you, and you. She nodded and pointed at the enlisted and officer alike. Your family makes some of the best bread in the region. Your family makes some of the best honey wine that I've ever had the pleasure of tasting. Much to her soldier's chagrin, she walked up and down the front rank of the Elven Line Infantry. Line Infantry, that stood at ready, soon lost their posture and pose little by little. Being the soldiers that they were, Beetlesheen saw others crept closer a step and half a step at a time. At least until she noticed them, she whipped around, bald fists on her hips as she huffed. I told you, she cried out in her best human dialect, to hold. Her reddish burnt amber-hued skin was redder with anger. I know what I'm doing. Whether from her poor language skills, body language, or the surreal nature of it all, Hoso Abbas burst into a hearty laughter. No one person could be identified as starting it. But in short order, Hazal Abbas had squatted down and taken the seat on the field. Jokes and teasing insults were hurled from their ranks at the elfin ranks, only to quiet down when Beetlesheen turned to engage her opposition once again. The first battle for the revolution was won not by a brutal bayonet charge, but with a smile and a hug. Her 100 Zal Abbas were supplemented by the 300-strong regiment of line infantry her own family had sent to quell her. It would be the only battle of its kind. The first the princess would see of the realities of open revolt happened on the extreme edge of her new holdings. The last platoon of her human regiment, now being called her first regiment, was positioned on the extremity of Beetlesheen's territory towards the capital. It would be, and was, the first point of contact where the violence was exchanged. Securing her holding was important, and she felt each needed to see her in flesh before she could focus her efforts. It frustrated her that it had been several months since the Feast of the Bayonets, and she was just now arriving with a relief force to properly secure the factory. Riders had ensured she knew her forces were still there, but those riders had also reported casualties. On approach to the village, which ran to the factory, the first bodies and carcasses were encountered. The bodies were often clad in a uniform of lances of the guard of one of the lesser noble families. Their deaths were recent, and a call from the shrubs on a nearby hillock revealed what had happened. The men who stood wore beetle sheen's colors, but it was a standard uniform, simple trousers with a standard jacket, a floppy, bold cap instead of the caps Ozal Avis wore. There were five of them, in all. 
one with the twin chevrons of Corporal, Corporal Ollie, as he'd come to be known. They'd ambushed the Lancers, who had been probing the area for a while. Initially, they thought the dust cloud of their relief was a larger enemy force, which had inspired the defenders to strike out more aggressively and proactively. Of the 25 soldiers sent to secure the factory and the village, six were dead, including the officer and both sergeants, and another five had been wounded. Of the wounded, three were boarded in the village, being tended to by the villagers. Of the six killed, five were killed in action, and one was shot by Corporal Ollie. Confusion reigned supreme when Ollie reported why. Um, to baby with baby make, Beetlesheen asked for clarification, but the clarification only made it worse. Apparently, one of the sergeants was trying to make a baby with a baby. Was this some kind of dark sorcery? Were those rumors that she had learned as a child about humans true? Her confusion wasn't helped by a lack of complex understanding of any human dialect and all of her soldiers, even officers, lack of complex understanding of the elven dialect. That wedge of confusion that was starting to drive itself between Beetlesheen's humans and elven was, fortunately, quickly dispelled. Villagers, seeing who had arrived, started to flock to meet their new sovereign. Villagers, who knew what had happened. One of the sergeants, hearing of what was acceptable for persons of authority to demand, had tried to abscond with young elven girls. Such abuses of power were normal affair in low and elven society, given the stratified nature of authority. There was something that just was. Corporal Ollie disagreed. He was already second in command due to fatalities, and his anger upon discovering what was transpiring was truly terrifying. According to the villagers, a fight began the moment Ollie was led to the scene, and it escalated to lethal force quickly. In his best broken alvin, Ollie had addressed the village as a whole. The nuances that he'd intended were lost in translation, but the gist of it got through. The tradition of paradigm was broken and gone. Old norms and accepted abuses will not be tolerated, not even by humans like him. Rule of law applied to all. That single act was enough to win the village's heart. Not only were these humans in elven colors dying to keep them safe from the forlorn position, the rules and changes they brought truly applied to everyone, especially themselves. The villagers worried that Ollie would be punished for killing his superior was quickly put to ease by Beetlesheen. This particular factory village had a light weaver, a far more vibrant and lifelike version of the stereograph that involved the use of a mirror, but still rare sorcery. The most widely circulated light weave of the early revolt came out of that village. It couldn't have been simpler, but it meant so much. A young elven peasant girl was all smiles as she temporarily pinned a new sergeant's patch onto the arm of a kneeling human soldier. A soldier in a soiled and torn standard uniform. A soldier who was trying to maintain a neutral expression. With just enough of a smile breaking through to add to the adorableness of the image. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1507 Story number one. The Signal, written by Glacial Fury. 
They tried to warn us, but uh, we didn't listen. The lead scientist lamented while looking through ten inches of plexi-steel glass at the darkening sky. We were too full of arrogance to see the danger, the folly of such pursuits. His audience shifted around him. Some blinked furtively. Others wept openly. All were reeling from shock and disbelief at the events rapidly unfolding outside of the bunker. For decades we searched, the scientist continued, never taking his eyes from the roiling, angry sky. We launched probes and signals, scanned the stars with powerful telescopes and sensors, searching. Searching for what? The scientist blinked as if emerging from a fevered dream and turned towards the voice. An answer. The answer. A low murmur filled the chamber, growing in strength until it reached an angry crescendo. Why couldn't you leave well enough alone? They demanded. What could you possibly hope to gain? The guards posted around the room shuffled uneasily and gripped their weapons tighter. The lead scientist ignored all of this and turned away from the angry crowd, returning his gaze to the blackened sky. We started the programs to find the answers. He paused dramatically and panned his eyes sideways over the crowd, a hint of regret seasoning his words. How uh, could we have known? He whispered softly, more to himself than the angry crowd of onlookers. How could we have known we'd find them? How could you not? Several of the crowd shouted out, with the rest nodding their heads vigorously in agreement. We were once just like them, you know, the scientist went on, loudly raising his voice over the crowds clamoring, unperturbed by their temperamental outbursts. We conquered and enslaved all that stood before us, taking any who stood before us as endangered serfs, forced them to build our roads and cities, stole their precious metals and natural resources. He wheeled around angrily at the last sentence and pointed a trembling digit at the crowd. Use them up and cast their husks to the wind. He spat angrily, slowly turning his back to the crowd. We left the corpse of an entire species decaying in the clawing heat of war. His anger silenced the unruly crowd, but it was quick to fade, and his eyes once again grew distant, the film of past sins playing out before them. We destroyed sapiens that had hopes and dreams of their own. The confused crowd considered the scientists' words, the truth behind them. Was this the universal constant punishment for their sins, penance for the atrocities they perpetrated on their peaceful neighbors? But the scientist wasn't finished yet. He continued to speak, continued to cast light on their culpability in the events unfolding across their planet. It wasn't that long ago that we were the invaders, that it was we who conquered all crushed under an invincible war machine, any who dared to stand against us all for the glory of the Empire. The blackening sky rumbled and continued to deepen, taking on an inky jet-black hue. And then, uh, suddenly, chains of jagged lightning split it open, and a drop of ships screamed into view, descending rapidly through the atmosphere towards the planet's cities. The thunder of defense weaponry greeted them, roaring their welcome in the distance. 
The bunker shook with violent tremors, and the lights flickered. The sky filled with an eerie orange, and a blue-hued light showed a billion heat rounds, and countless blooms and quakes, some distant, others near, filled their senses, drowning out all else until only they remained. Poetic, don't you think? The lead scientist remarked to the stunned crowd as he made his way over to the airlock. They tried to tell us, but we didn't listen. He barked out a sharp, guttural laugh, which bubbled wetly from between his gill-like nostrils. Ironic that a race we enslaved all those years ago tried to warn us that this could happen. And we didn't listen, the scientist said, glancing again at the battle raging outside. They cautioned us against sending signals into the dark, because what answers might not be friendly. The guards did nothing to stop the scientist as he entered his authorization codes into the airlock's control panel. And again, the inner doors whisked open, and he stepped inside. The door snapped shut behind him, and he turned to face the confused crowd. What was he doing, they wondered. Where was he going? He wasn't safe out there. Had he lost his mind? The scientist keyed the control for the airlock's mic as the electronically amplified voice resonated from the door's loudspeaker. Well, they were right, weren't they? He chuckled mirthlessly and peered through the glass at the crowd. We weren't prepared for this, he said, gesturing behind him at the brilliant chaos filling the sky. For any of this, how could we be? How could we know that it would come to this? A bitter laugh erupted from his throat. How could we not? He snapped madly, a feverish glint in his eyes. They're just like us, sir. Maybe. The world exploded into exquisite white, forever silencing the words in the scientist's throat. The airlock vaporized into a brownie and motes that floated across the stunned crowd's vision. They started to pick themselves up out of the rubble, when a dark, menacing figure stepped through the cloud of billowing smoke. The creature was arrayed from head to toe in dull-hued armor that shifted and blended with its surroundings. A heavy pulse rifle rested easily in its hands as it peered intently around the room. But the helmet, the helmet was the most frightening thing of all. It had no face, no eyes, dark and fearsome. Monstrous. Just a few lenses that stared back at them, coldly refracting the dim lights of the dust-choked bunker. It said that the time of the Empire was over. It said that humanity had come. End of story. Story number two. Monstrous, written by Provisional Rebel. It hung in the silence of space, clinging in the cold void to the derelict vessel of its enemy. It was a weapon, that's all it was, but the most dangerous kind. It was a weapon that could hate. It couldn't remember how long it had been there. The war was unending. Sooner or later, though, they would come for their comrades. And it was always right. At first, it was blind. But then it could see. It felt the vibrations of the ship docking, bringing it back to the waking world. Its prey was here. The enemy had come to collect their dead. 
He crept along the outer hull of this new ship, flashes of hatred filling its thoughts. It had to get in. It had to make them pay. And soon, it found what it was looking for. A crack in the armor, microscopic, but enough for it to slip through. Then, it was upon them. The first didn't have the chance, walking just beneath it as it entered the corridor. It smothered it in its silvery mass before slamming it against the bulkhead and ending its miserable life. It got another as it came to investigate. But then the world went red and alarms blared. They knew it was here. It didn't matter. They were all going to suffer. It stalked the corridor until it heard a faint cry from behind a nearby door. It pressed against it, pooling through the cracks until it was inside. It saw another of its enemies cowering in the corner. The monster cried out, holding something small to its chest. The enemy had never given them mercy. Their kind deserved none. It rose to the ceiling, ready to crash down on this monstrous thing. And then it heard the whimper, low and muffled by the monstrous clothes. They looked down and saw the alien held some other creature. It saw the tail tucked between the creature's legs, its ears laid back against its skull. It almost looked like a dog. No, it was a dog. It looked like a mutt, almost familiar like one that he once had, and it looked so terrified in the monster's arms. The shapeless thing paused, and then it began to recede and pull together, its silvery liquid forming a familiar shape that it couldn't quite remember. He had. He was a he. His gaze fell down to his body, an amorphous mockery of a biped. This wasn't right. The silvery figure raised one of his hands to look at it. That's what he had. Hands. The silvery appendage slowly became solid, hands with fingers forming at the end of each. He clenched him into fists, remembering the muscles which used to pull beneath his skin. He took a step forward, but it wasn't right either. His body splashed across the deck. His gaze fell to his legs, and they became defined. Why hadn't he had legs? Finally, he looked outward again. This monster, no. J just a child. It looked like the enemy. But the skull was all wrong. Her face. It was almost human. They never had ears like that. They had never had noses like that. What did he look like? He ran a hand along his face where it should have been. But he was smooth and cold to the touch. He remembered his nose, his ears, his mouth, and his eyes. They all came back into focus, and he felt his face manifest. He wanted to cry. He felt pain where his heart once was. It was crushing him, but he couldn't cry. Why couldn't he cry? He just couldn't bring himself to tears, to cry out and let his pain leave him. He felt his lips stretch into a frown, and then remembered that he could speak. What 
have I done? End of story. The algorithm reckons you should be watching this video next, and I recommend that you should be always watching my video. So, click, click, click. With energy! And yes, clicking that does help the channel. Thank you very much.